capital is dead labor. That vampire-like only lives by sucking living labor. And lives the more, the more labor it sucks. One bear and one woman promise to suck only at podcasting. And your art. Knackers and the badge. Hey, as you know, the old order is dying and the new is yet to be born. And in this interregnum, fancy word for the time between times, we are at a strange historical juncture. And this is why a strange woman and a strange bear, a.k.a. Knackers and the Vag, are speaking with you uh, right now. I'm already stumbling. And why am I stumbling? Why is my speech faltering when it is normally, as you know, so perfect? It is because... I am in the presence of greatness, in the person of Mr. Edmund Perfect. Edmund. Hello. Good evening. Do you want to talk about, do you want to be transparent about what's going on tonight or do you just want to just pretend like? You can. So um, Ms. Helen Razor and I have been drinking champagne since very early in the afternoon. And perhaps taking adult pharmaceuticals, we can't say. Of course. Who knows? And then we 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 did a whole podcast, didn't we? And it was great. We, we said some a, amazing shit. We did a three-hour podcast. A three-hour podcast. But did it record? No, it didn't. I fucked up. You know? I mean, I'm legally blind. Well, you know? less people would, would go, oh, well, you know, say la vie and head on home. But I'm still, I'm here. You're here. Knackers is here. Yeah. Knackers is a bear made in a factory. Some would look at him simply as a commodity and not look twice. He is, however, a powerful symbol of authority. And I give you Knackers the bear, Mr. Perfect, when I go on too long. And I do. And um, I'm seeing people about this. You right. know, I know it's a problem. I know that I'm um, verbally violent, oppressive. Mm-hmm. In conversation, if you will. So when I start doing that, as I will shortly, and in fact, as I am doing now, you wave. All right, I'm waving. The I'm waving. male bear commodity at me, and I'll I'll know that you have something much more important to say. I don't know who would look at knackers and think that's a commodity. That's a that that's a sad thing to think. Looking at a stuffed bear with a cute blue nose. We're all commodities. Well, that's, yeah. Yeah, Mm, right. Yeah. Before I start boring you with Marxist concepts, and that will occur frequently and and soon, how do I introduce this man? Oh, fuck, you know who he is if you're listening in the US. You'll know who he is soon. He is a man in extraordinary transition, transition between nations. In fact, soon. You will go to the United States of America, located in North America. Yeah, in North America, in Manhattan, the island of Manhattan. I've been going there for the last three years with little workshops, leaving my family behind. But this is a big trip. I'm taking my whole family over for a year to rehearse and put up Beetlejuice the Musical, King Kong the Musical, almost simultaneously, although Beetlejuice is in Washington, D.C., opens in Washington, D.C., and um, King Kong opens at the Broadway Theatre 
four days after that on the on the fourth of November. So I don't I actually don't know how I'm gonna split my time, but I'm excited. It's great. Mm. And I know you're a bit you sort of don't know how you got there either, right? Um I, I, I do looking back, but the the road there was pretty much just hacking through virgin rainforest. You know, it's luck. It was luck and opportunity and time and persistence. And I spent three years going to New York with my face pressed against the glass, feeling like I would never get on that great big rider list in the sky. And then I asked about um, pitching on Beetlejuice the musical because I knew they didn't have a. Uh, composer lyricist and my agent was like there's no way it's out in a pitch process with these amazing um broadway people all of whom are like properly amazing heroes of mine but i was like what if i just wrote two songs for free would would they listen to them and my agent was like oh my god you do that and i was like yeah i would pretty much do anything at this point to get on that list of writers well, can we talk about that um desire Though, um, yeah. so uh, we are Australian. We live in what is broadly construed as the rectum of the world. We don't meaningfully have our own culture. It's borrowed. Um, we assess ourselves in the terms of what the UK, the, 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 the invader colonisers of this nation can do or we assess ourselves in terms of what the the cultural power of the moment the United States can do. And some of the stuff, my favourite stuff, that you've done has been an examination of Australian life. You don't pretend to be universal. A lot of your work is very much centred on the aspirational white working class Australian life and um, well, middle middle class life. That, well, what do you think? Get close to your microphone, darling. You've got a lovely voice. You can, you can me- hear me. Middle class. I think I I was brought up middle class, and everything I write is about, in one way or another, about being middle class. Can you tell me how you define middle class? I've always I, I I'm unconvinced by the definition. What do you mean, middle class? Oh, God, you're making me plant a flag in the sand. But I would say I was born from parents who were university educated, who had the means to buy their own house, Mm -hmm. who... But can you define more broadly for me, for you, uh, what middle class means here on Knackers and the Vatch? I can, and this is very broad, I think... Middle class is a is the place in Australia is the place above where you are not just concerned with earning a wage, where you have the financial flexibility to think about loftier ideas about education, arts, the mu- music, yeah. sports, okay, so culture. basically people with enough leisure. But it's it's more like priorities. There's something. In building so, okay, to being middle right. class, so it is aspirational. Okay, so it's a it's a cultural category. It's not necessarily an economic category. I mean, so like in the United States, since about eighteen fifty, I understand uh, the the white male worker who generally had a family, his prospects gradually got 
better and better until about right. well, you know, there was the 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 Great Depression and um, then you know there was the stagflation of the early nineteen seventies, and up until you know living memory, things got better for each generation. Now they're getting shit, and it's the same in Australia. And when we talk about the middle class, you're Close to 40 now, even though you don't look it? No, I am 40. I turned 40 in December. You're actually 40, my goodness. Mm. It's terrifying. I remember when you were a kid, an upstart just out of school. Yeah. Playing your piano mm-hmm. for like $15 shows. Yeah, I think that was, that's, I don't think I've even made $15 out of a show until I was like 30. No, but that's what we paid to go and see you. Um, and it was good. It was well worth every dollar. It's a really good question how you define middle class. Do, is it well, about money or is it about attitude? Like, what is it? Okay, well, I mean, I'm torn. You know, I think it is healthier politically to think of, well, you know, what the Occupy movement said inspired by Joseph Stiglitz, we are the 99%. And then there is 1% of people who have great wealth that can then generate more great wealth, but our existence is contingent on others. And so, like, economically speaking, really there's only two classes, uh, wealthy class and, you know, the rest of us, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. But culturally speaking, perhaps in Western nations, you could say that there was a middle class because of the things that you described, the aspiration, not just in the terms of, oh, we're going to do better and better and we're going to make our house bigger and our children will do better than than even we did and all of that stuff that has been happening since the post-war period in Australia and, and the US and other Anglophone and Western nations. But what else comes with being middle class? And this is a topic of investigation for you and your work. You have become equally in Australia celebrated and reviled for showing this middle class. So whether it's a cultural or economic category, we could argue that all night. We have already just done a three-hour fucking podcast that didn't record. Um, yeah, but that was just a warm-up to this glory. Yeah. You know, my childhood, my people, kids. How do people, why do people, why does the Australian middle class, and so you're saying that this is a, you know, we'll agree that it's a cultural category. If people who want to better themselves in every way, you know, become, elevate themselves, not only in an economic sense but in a cultural sense too. Mm-hmm. They want to appreciate the arts. And in Australia it's this real kind of like renaissance attitude too, isn't it? I am in a renaissance Citizen, I will love the football as much as I am moved by poetry. Mm. Um, how did you get to the point where you were serving up, like with The Beast, mm-hmm. a non-musical play, right? Yeah. Y- you were serving up caricatures or sort of, you know, moral dilemmas faced by the middle class. And they love, se- the audience loves seeing themselves depicted like that as, I mean, and in this conversation you're talking about the so-called middle class, you know, like culturally progressive, tolerant, you know, like want to understand like opera or whatever. 
you're talking about them with some affection, but that's not how you depict them. Um, no, I mean, like my, I can only really give my um, interpretation of what middle class means. My parents were educators; they were both um, teachers. They valued education. They um, had both gone to university when the rest of their family hadn't. They had, you know, they were big devotees of Gough Whitlam. Um, they believed in reading and ideas and words and, um, and I guess like I got sent to things like I got sent to piano lessons for two years before I quit. I got sent to ballet lessons. You know, they provided a huge range of experiences for us. They weren't just like you need to get a job. And my mm. parents all the way through my life were pretty um, extraordinary and maybe f- foolhardy because they were like, just do what you want to do. What are you passionate about? What do you want to do? And you, you know, you were sort of like a weedy kid, like to physically mature and mm. living in a beachside fucking Australian suburb where, which I imagine was dominated by young men who turned brawny on schedule at the age of 13. Yeah, I grew up in a in a footy in the winter, cricket in the summer place, and sporting prowess in my particular school was the, was the biggest value. Mm. And I wasn't particularly great at those things. I was interested in visual arts, and so that's what I spent the majority of my time doing. And that's what you started to study, actually, because yeah, you I wanted, wanted to be a visual to... artist. Yeah. Are you any good? Uh, I can draw really well. I've got a great visual eye, but I got to first year university, RMIT, studying printmaking. And my lecturers were like, what are you trying to say? And I was like, I've got no idea. I had nothing to say. I literally had no point of view. Oh, right. But you had a point of view when it came to other media? At that time, I had no point of view in any medium. I wasn't trying any other medium. But I didn't have an opinion. I just, I just wanted to. You didn't, at least not even the outsider, I don't belong opinion or. Um, I painted a lot of stuff that people interpreted in lots of different ways. And I I won like a massive art prize in year 12. Oh, really? Yeah. It was like this kind of, um, what is it? The V, the VK, I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, something good. The VCA kind of like art prize because I did a portrait of my dad. And every time I go over to my dad's house, did your dad I, like it? Yeah, he, he really liked it. How did it. you depict him? Um, it's a it's a big canvas, and it's kind of like it's a little bit like the William Doe Bell Archibald Prize, the very controver- controversial Archibald Prize portrait. It's kind of caricaturish. It's really hyper colorful. It's just my dad, and I don't I literally don't know why I drew it. And I could draw a, a bunch of you know, rationales for why I drew it. And I remember when it won the prize, there was a lot of scrutiny about it and I'd never had anyone really talk or think about my work. I was I was 16 years old, 17 years old. People were like, obviously there's this fraught relationship with his father and a fixation his father and it's like it puts him in this weird off-kilter. And I, and I was really interested in the fact that I just, and this is going to sound so lame. No, no. I just wanted to I just wanted to paint my dad. I just wanted to show him that I saw him. Do you know what I mean? And that's a very weird thing to say. I didn't have I didn't have a problem with him. I just 
wanted him to know that I but saw him. I mean, that's the fucking weird thing with lots of artists and, and lots of artworks. Um, you may not have an intention. You may not be in control. Like, you have to let the alchemy occur and perhaps, you know, I mean, if it did allow a range of interpretations um, or one common interpretation, then good, well done. Mm. Well, my dad's not perfect, despite the name, and there were there were a lot of kind of like you know he was raising t- three kids and working as a, as a school teacher. And so was your mum. Yeah, so yeah. was my mum. And you know, like I have lots of memories of like stuff that I cringe at in terms of being a parent now. I would never do that with my kids, but um, oh, well, parent, you know, par- there's parenting changes, conventions right? in in certain eras and. Yeah, like, you know, I mean, I grew up in an era where it was not only permissible but recommended that you spank your children. And, I mean, I, that that would have you arrested these days if you are of the Australian middle class, right? Yeah, well, I the, the reason why spanking is, is not part of mine and Lucy's life now is because we can't, rationalise any justification for doing it. It just feels like losing your temper. Did, were you ever spanked as a kitty? Yeah. Um, I remember. My it, parents spanked me. And it's like, you know, for me it was like, um, you know, it, it was as powerful in terms of understanding power and how to wield it as reading that shit book by Machiavelli, The Prince. Like, I mean, when my father never spanked me but my mother did, and the sheer naked brutality of the act, because you know you're little and this person is big and that they've lost their shit. Yeah. And I used to It wasn't a physical pain. It was it was the anger that flipped that, that caused them to do that. That's the it was the crossing of the anger barrier. That was what was confronting about the, for my parents me, making I, me, not I, the physical pain. I have a really Fairly, and I've discussed it with my therapist many times, um, but I have a very vivid memory of being about four and my mother spanking me. I mean, I was probably a shit kid. Like at three, apparently, I used to, before I could read, I used to tell my mother to take down dictation for me. You know, I have an idea for a story, take it down. I mean. Wow. You, know, you I treated, loomed it. I, I treated her like my, and of course, they were the stories of a three-year-old. They made no sense you know, didn't really deserve to be taken down. But, I mean, I'm read sure. Read it back to me. <laughs> I did that too. Yeah. Like. What have I got? What, what did I just back? write? You know. Yeah. And then, so I'm sure I was a very irritating child for that and many other reasons and I, I can understand why she may have been moved to discipline me in what was the acceptable way. But I remember experimenting at around that age with going limp, um, you know, passive resistance. And not reacting and just being as vulnerable as possible and feeling the power really shift, you know, like mm. just making it. Um, it's pretty hard to smack a limp kid, let's face it, right? It is. I mean, I just, you know, I just attempted to show myself by instinct, not by intellect, in all of my childish vulner- vulnerability and the spanking kind of was less common after that. You know, it's just like naked authoritarianism does not work for long to control a person. Of course not. 
I remember my parents being angry and smacking me, and I remember it being, I knew I crossed the line and I just dealt with it. But the, but the biggest memory I have is when mum was angry at me and my sisters and then we were in one of the rooms jumping on the bed and I was having a good old bitch about my mum. Oh, what were you saying? Can you remember? I can't remember what How I was saying. But I knew, oh, like seven or eight. Yeah. But mum walked in and heard it. And I turned around and I saw that she had heard what I was saying. And she Did you just, feel shame immediately? She or? just, she didn't get angry. She just cried. She just oh. cried and then she walked out. And I never felt so bad. I was like, that's, yeah, that's what I just did was unforgivable. So there was no smacking involved in that, but that was a very powerful memory. Mm. And, you know, I remember my parents being angry at me and yelling at me, and I, I'm not saying I'm a saint. I'm, I've yelled at my kids, but I I am very aware that I don't want to be that kind of dad. And the way that kids are brought up now, it's amazing. I feel like there's a, there's a lot to, to learn from kids. Oh, Jesus, Eddie. There is. There is. You know, like um, kids- you Please don't lay the wisdom of children on me. Why? Because they're not wise. They're little people. They're cute and they're funny. And fuck me, it's fascinating to watch them become human, like to watch them acquire language, to watch them acquire skills, to watch them sometimes see the world in all its strangeness and, and, and absurdity and to see, you know, you watch a little kid, watch other starving little kids on television and they will say simple things like, you can't argue with what, like, why do, doesn't everyone have the same? Yeah. But I don't want to valorise that kind of obvious statement of children as as wisdom. I think no, it's not wisdom. It's it's it's, it's the opposite of wisdom. Is just the the bullshit lies you tell yourself to make that self the, all that reality okay. Kids aren't wise. They're interesting. They just see what they see in front of them. They're interesting because. You're sure they're unaffected and all of, all of that stuff, but I mean, I just love seeing them wrestle with what I, adult identity means and finding it repugnant for a while, and and then just like you know, they're like little computers that haven't had this the software installed yet. I mean, they're to watch them grapple is 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 fascinating. But I I mean, I don't. It's amazing. It's a human thing to try and impose a kind of order onto chaos. And even oh, yes. I an mean, eight-year-old kid will do it. Like So, like, my daughter got it into her head that she was a really good swimmer, right? Yeah. She goes to swimming lessons every this week. Is Char- Charlotte? No, this is Kitty, Kitty right? Kitty, sorry. So Kitty is amazing on land. She's not so hot in the sea. So she's got her good things and, and not so good things. But I take her to swimming lessons every Tuesday night. It's half an hour in the pool. That's all. But she got into her head through discussing, through social interaction with her friends, that she was amazing at swimming, mm. backstroke in particular. So we did this, went to the um, her first school swimming carnival and she did the freestyle and she didn't go great in that and she was really upset about that and then she was like, but don't worry, the backstroke's coming up. That's my mm. event. Both Lucy and I were there. It was at the um, – um, I'm sorry, how old is she now? She's – Eight. Yeah, but it's her first swimming carnival ever. And so she swam doing backstroke and she came, I don't know, 
towards the end. And she was so freaked out by that, really upset by it. And it was this amazing day where parents, not just me and Lucy, but all other parents were dealing with the way that kids had visualised their own abilities and then the reality. And they were like, this isn't fair. And we were like, this is absolutely fair. This is, it's like you go in the pool, you swim, you get out of your end, you do, you do what you do. And I've, it was so amazing to be there when a girl, your daughter, is so upset that they're not, that they didn't do the way that they thought they would do. And it was sort of an all-consuming sorrow that she had, like one of the worst things that has ever happened or? Well, like- it, has, it has social implications because she was trying to make new friends in her um, school neighbourhood. So she wanted to get a good result and get a ribbon so that she would have status, <laughs> social status. And then she didn't get that. So there was a social cost to that. But at the same time, it was, I don't know, it was it was really interesting because she was really result-oriented and we were like, you, all the whole time, textbook, you swam, you worked really hard, you finished the race, you were involved. Okay, so where, where does that come from? Like, does it come, I mean, this is not too, like, I would never... Like, don't even let me babysit your children. I will, you know, I'm not good with them. I mean, I find them fascinating and I like to be pals with them, but I'm not good at looking after them. I mean, the last time I babysat, you know, I really upset the parents um, because, I mean, I'm just such a fool. Like this little girl said, you know, that she wanted to, she announced she wanted to be a princess when she grew up and Mm -hmm. she was four and I should have said, great or sure, but instead I said, well, you know, that's highly unlikely. There's not many royal families in the world. There's just one Australian woman who's ever become a princess. And, you know, it's not as though these jobs are advertised in, in, in the classifieds. And and FYI, it's bullshit. And then, you know, I started, I just got on a tear and started telling her about, and anyway, I made her cry probably through boredom. And I don't know how to, at, at particular ages, when they're about eight or nine, they're pretty cool. But I mean, before that, like, I don't know how to talk to them. It's really hard. Like, we, what we're talking about is the same thing: encouragement, encouragement versus reality. But the thing that I really enjoy seeing my kids deal with is failure. I, that's not a sadistic thing, but I have learnt a lot from failure in my life. Mm. I feel like all of my sure. resilience and all my drive comes from failure. Success teaches you nothing it's all, unless. It teaches you delusion. I well, mean, I'm awesome, you know. I'm, I, I won. I'm great. You know, you're not going to think about whether you could have swum fast. Like being the winner doesn't teach you anything. It just affirms you. But losing makes you go, do I need to train harder? Do I care about this sport? What do I want to do? So we were just talking about you winning something at school. What did that experience teach you, you were saying before that it it taught you that perhaps there are many interpretations of something that is rewarded. That No, I spent my entire primary and high school life not being good at the things that were culturally valued in my area, and I don't blame anyone for that. Everyone was interested in sport. It's Australia. I yeah. mean, you know, like I accepted that long ago. I mean, I can't get a suntan. I can't see a ball. 
Look, what I, did, what many- I did wasn't valued. What I did wasn't valued and I was never like, why don't you value it? I was just like, that's just how it is. And then when I won the VCE. Okay, so your formative experience was what I what I do, what I'm interested in, what I might be productive at by luck or nature or whatever is not widely valued. I'm okay with that. You you learned that quite early. I was just like just I just like I'm not in in the inner group. It didn't bother me. I wasn't like like vilified or bullied, but I was just like this I don't have any cultural capital in this world. I'm just going to do the thing that I like. And then in year 12, but, when my I sent my folio off yeah. and I and I won that award, which was the net result was that the portrait I painted of my dad yeah. was hung in the National Gallery of Victoria. I want to see it because, I mean, it sounds like almost like a Howard Arkley work. Yeah, it was a little bit. I, I mean, I, if you don't know Howard Arkley, he's mildly relevant for me to mention here because I live in a Howard Arkley suburb. He's most famous for, I mean, he did do portraits, famously one of Nick Cave. Yeah. And he went, I think, to the, was it the 1999 Biennale? Biennale. Yeah. And then came home, perhaps got some smack of uncommon quality and, and died. Really? I believe Howard Arkley died of... Wow. A heroin overdose, and he was a little bit younger than you when he died. He had a great eye for, how would you, how would you determine it? Like, okay, um, well, he had a great eye for. Glamorous nostalgia? I mean, I don't even think, and it's, if you haven't seen the works, I mean, you know, have a look at them. Like, just Google Howard Arkley and look under Google image search. What you'll find, I mean, the Nick Cave portrait will be there. Sounds a bit like maybe what Eddie was painting of his dad at around the same time and, and those hypercolours and that kind of caricature that was happening, I guess, in Australian visual culture maybe at the time that you were painting, like maybe without you even knowing it. But, I mean, this was what, like the early 90s or? This is 1995. 1995. So... That was a time where, and I was working very much in 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 media at that time, and it was a trend. It, you can say this of any point in history, but in terms of visual culture and popular culture, it was a transitional time. We were moving from you know very staid news and media environment to something peculiar, you know, and you see that explored in films like The Truman Show. For example, like things aren't really real, and then if you read one of my favorite films, yeah, it's a good film, right? And 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 if you read the French philosophy around the time, like people like um, Jean Baudrillard, like talking about things being a copy of a copy of a copy, and you know the original real not existing. So there was a lot of really hyper visual culture around, and you know we became familiar with the the MTV images here in Australia. I mean, people in um, the US had known them long before, but we started seeing, you know, a film inspired by Kenneth Anger, I think it was, you know, heightened images of people. So it was probably something very much of its time, which probably had something to do with the fact that it was. Well, I remember Truman Show came later. Truman Show came when I was stuck in Melbourne and I identified with that film so so completely because I was like, I feel like the, the world is literally conspiring to keep me where I am. But when I was in high school, it wasn't like a massive thing. It just wasn't 
You felt that way because the world does conspire to keep us all where we are. Of course. I of mean, course it does. you know, liberal democracy promises the very thing that it can never provide. Which yeah, is- but when you're in high school, you don't have the means or the tools to escape. You're trapped in high school. The only thing that gives you relief in high school is if you're either successful in high school or you find an interest in a world outside okay, of it. Okay, you're talking about you, though. I mean, I don't think most people want to escape. I mean, you know, people that are healthy have parents who can feed them all that stuff. I, I mean, I don't think there is a sense of escape because, I mean, I went to my – oh, I had an excuse like I, I wrote about it, but I went to my school reunion out of curiosity. What year? How, how long was – 20 years I went to. Wow. And, you know, I, this thought of people with a partial shared history – reconvening 20 years into the future, it was too irresistible not, of course. not to go. And I had by that time become famous and I was bullied at school and I wanted to do a bit of a fuck you, frankly. Uh, so you were back for a victory lap. I was. It was appalling. And not only that, but I had a commission from a major newspaper to write about the experience and I had a photographer with me. So oh, my God. I know. Pathetic, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. I got everything I wanted. People apologised for bullying oh me. And I didn't accept it because I'm a turd. But most of, I mean, my point is that the real life experience that I had when I went to the bar with some of them later and I apologised for dissing them very publicly and I had real conversations with them is that people had moved metres away from where they were brought up. Many of them had, and remember, I mean, you know, if you're a a younger person, this is not going to be your experience because you're going to have to move and you're going to have to change careers because that's the world now. But, I mean, you know, kids were doing what their parents had done. They were living in the same postcode. And, you know, do you keep in touch with anyone from Mentone? No. Yeah, me neither. No, not out of any enmity. But do you know or do you suspect that most of them are still there and now they've got probably people about to enter high school and they haven't moved much? Some of them are. Some of them um, have married girls from from Kilbreda, the sister school, that they met while we were doing the high school musical. Oh, so you were at a boys only? Yeah, I was at a boys school, yeah. Okay, so you went at a state school? You yeah. got state school educated all over you. How am I no, wrong? No, I went to St. Bede's College when my dad taught there. Yeah, Catholic boys' school, St. Bede's College. Are you Catholic? I was raised Catholic, yeah. yeah. me too. Yeah, which is where the social justice comes from, right? No, it's just where the guilt and shame comes from. I don't know. I don't have, a mu- I don't have much guilt and shame, but I do have a, like, uh, there's a lot of stuff. I had a lot of guilt and shame when I was young. And my experience of being young was mostly about being self-conscious. The thing that really, oh my god, you don't seem like that at all anymore. Dude, I mean, I'm literally, I literally focused on training myself out of it. I was so self-conscious. And what about the self? Were you you conscious that everyone was looking at me, the way I was behaving, the way I looked, the fact that I was overweight, like chubby kid? Perhaps they were. The fact that I had a government. Well. But I actually think that in retrospect. Perhaps you were entertainment, you know, this preternaturally fucking musically gifted little kid. Like I wasn't in, that in high school. I was just a fat kid in the art room on, you learned, drawing pictures. You learned piano young and you could sing. I learned piano when I was six and 
seven, I quit because I uh, my teacher worked out that I was playing from here. I learned guitar in year eight for a year because it was grunge. It was like Nirvana oh, and Pearl Jam. I'm so sorry. I, I played all those records on the radio of at course. that time. Like that was an amazingly profound. Uh, and Guns N' Roses, I wanted Wanted to play the guitar. Oh, my God. Do you love Appetite for Destruction? Of course. Like, it's a fucking perfect rock album, right? Yeah. Like, it's seriously, Guns N' Roses, in my view, made one perfect white boy rock record, and that's Appetite for Destruction. Everything else can get fucked, but it's an amazing record. The first piece of physical music I ever bought was um, the small vinyl single because that was what Brashes was in in Mentone on the – on Florence Street, there was like Brash's music store, and I went in there and I bought um, the vinyl single of Sweet Child of Mine. Or no, it, what was it? Um, Mr. Brownstone. Mr. Brownstone. I think. It was, no, Welcome to the Jungle. Michael, oh, wow, yeah, yeah. I didn't know that you had an appreciation for rock. I, I mean, it's not honestly. I mean, I love your music, um, but especially the Mentone one. Um, but it's um not apparent in what you do, oh. the rock and roll. I came up through the um, piano tradition. I feel like with, yeah. with musicians and writers, there's like the Tin Pan Alley piano tradition and that's yep. like, for me, it's like Tom Waits and Elton John and and um, uh, Billy Joel. All people who, I'm talking about pop. I'm not talking about But, I mean, they make beautiful music, all yeah. three that you mentioned. Yeah, but like my my heroes are all like you know George and Ari Gershwin and uh, uh, you know guys who wrote show, Jerome Kern. But apparently, for some time, Slash and Axel. But over the other side of the road, there's, there's a guitar tradition, and that was you know Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins, and um, it was Pearl Jam, and I listened to all that music. The Violent Femmes, guitar-based music was very different. It didn't have the same. Gravitas, but I, I liked it and I appreciate it, and I still do. Like I've got my very good friend Ezekiel Locks is the is the front man for many rock bands, and I go to them and and I go to his gigs, and they're amazing because they're so cathartic. Like it's it's a, and I feel like the heavier the music, there is nothing more lovely than being in a crowd of heavy metal fans. They are oh, yeah. absolute I mean, gentlemen. It's like the light of the oh, music no, no, gets. Oh, no, 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 that's true. The, like my first paid job as an adult ever was hosting a heavy metal show on ABC Radio and I met a really? lot of. No, no, yes. I used to do a show called The Two Hours of Power and this was 1990, which is probably around the time you're talking about, and metal in that period before Seattle hit and before, I mean, the other big thing at the at the time that was happening was hip hop, of course. But for white kids, there was nothing more a certain type of white kid. There was nothing more urgent or outsider or meaningful than metal. Do you and, like metal? Do you, do you uh, like metal heavy rock? What's your no? I mean, fuck yeah! Like seriously, I like I grew up in. What's your form? When did you first hear? Heavy metal or heavy rock? Well, I mean, from the garages of other dads, you know, in my suburb and, you know, Black Sabbath or Deep Purple. And then, you know, I mean, an Australian child of the 1970s and 80s, you can't grow up without hearing some ACDC. And, I mean, you hear TNT and 
it's a fucking amazing album. I mean, you know, whatever Angus Young has become, he was an extraordinarily restrained and talented lead guitarist. They're amazing songwriters. The craft of their songwriting is, is incredible. I mean, the lead breaks were never too much. And, I mean, when I was very young, there was a show called Countdown. If you're Australian, you've probably yep. heard of it. And there's a moment where the great Bon Scott appears doing, I think it's a John Lee Hooker song, Baby Please Don't Go. Mm-hmm. And so they're playing, you know, they're really paying homage to the blues, which I, as a white kid in Australia, had never really heard before. And so they're doing this particular timing and Bon Scott is dressed in, for no reason, no explanation, in women's clothing, blonde plaits and this very masculine guy who suggests nothing so much as, to borrow a phrase of my mother's, he's all dick and ribs. You know, like yeah. a lot of rock stars look like that, yeah. like um, say Mick Jagger, all dick and ribs, young Rod Stewart, all dick and ribs. Like you can imagine them naked, right? And yeah. all, all you see are ribs and this enormous boner. And that was like with Bon Scott, you, you couldn't not, even if you're a really young kid, feel that there was something very phallic about him. And, I mean, he was always posing with his pubes hanging out and stuff. I mean, he was this outrageously sexual character and, and then he appeared on Countdown singing an old blues standard dressed as a schoolgirl and so that was probably the first, but I mean, by that time I was, you know, an older teenager or 20 or something. And so the big things were like appetite for destruction, very important, but I was more like, um, I really love Slayer. Do you know Slayer? Yeah. I never got into Slayer. Oh not, my God. Not, not from any rejection. I just never listened yeah, to them. But I mean, it takes some time and Metallica. Um, yeah. I like, you, fuck me. Like they were really a band of their eighties in, in my view. Like, their best stuff is from the 80s. Well, I was learning guitar when Metallica were doing, what the, the, was it the Black Album? A- yeah, Enter Sandman. Enter Sandman. Yeah. Also, I mean, very commercial for them, but very, very good. But there was a period where there was all these sort of musical forms for, and you're talking about the heavy metal boys, and there's heavy metal girls as well, and they are, you know, I mean, sure, some of them are a little bit like Anton LaVey Satanist, and, but Satanists aren't that bad. You know, they're fine. and. You know, I mean, I don't care if someone's the same as I just like the music, yeah. Uh, But I mean, they're just sweet people, of course. The the metal kids, I mean, there was there's a couple of metal kids that I met that scared me, but I mean, there's people that I meet that scare me, and so I like I met a lot of metal people, and I mean, there was a band that I used to hang out with a bit called Sadistic Execution, and (laughs) I've heard of that band, (laughs) they were really wild, I mean, they were very good. And I don't know, it was like a rebirth of punk or something because I didn't. It was almost like surf punk or something, was that the? No, no, they were death metal. Right. Yeah, sort of death slash thrash and, you know, suicidal tendencies, you know, like sort of skate metal. And, I mean, there was a lot of stuff and there was a lot of genres around like um, grindcore and. um, Can I tell you the story of when I first heard Rage Against the Machine? Sure. Not really metal, but. No. Still awesome. So um, there was a girl I knew because she went to kill Brita, but she was always dark and mysterious. And I had no reason to talk to her. She was always a kind of a dark-eyed, brooding girl. Mm. And so our paths never really crossed apart from just like walking back and forth to school. 
But my mum had some business with her mum and I can't remember what it was. But mum was like, I've got to go over to Mrs. What's-her-name's house. Mm. And I think it might have been about an, a piece of art, like buying a piece of art, selling a piece of art. Was your, is your mother an aesthete? Does she appreciate visual things? Yeah, my mum was the art coordinator at Star of the Sea. She's, a, she's an educator, but she, the, uh, she's an amazing The alma mater of our Australian public intellectual, Jermaine Greer. Yeah, and she's also, um, she's just got an artist spirit. She's right. got a really interesting, open artist spirit and she's got amazing taste that she um, kind of like spreads around with, with a lot of grace. She's not like a, I hate that. She's just like. She just gravitates towards but stuff it's, she likes. So, so this is where your interest in visual art came from, perhaps. Oh, yeah, absolutely. My mum was a massive. And you had some talent for it. You could make yeah. the work. But for whatever reason, I, I, it, it, you weren't moved by it or it didn't move you and you couldn't. No, I was just making pretty pictures. I had a lot of technique but just making pretty pictures. It was all about the um, – the the form and not about the content. Had you written songs by then, or no, at least never? Really? I mean, the idea of writing a song was so foreign to me at that point. So, so okay, you you may have become a visual artist if you if the possibility had occurred to you again, if you'd st- stuck with it, revisited it again when you were confident in your worldview. It, it's possible. Well, maybe I, I went to RMIT and studied printmaking and I was making work for an entire year and I really loved life drawing and loved observational drawing and I had a very, like, what I, I still have that style, like strong, messy, okay, so what, observational style. Okay, so you did it for a year and then after that you you did you, musicology palaver, right? Yeah, Bachelor of Music at Melbourne University. Posh yeah. and. Yeah, posh as fuck. Like how long did it take before you thought, "Hey, this is th- th- this is a thing that I could do do something with." I actually, I actually failed at Melbourne Uni. Awesome. I did my singing exam and I um I failed. And one of the biggest criticisms was that I was too dramatic. I was acting too much. And I remember in my second year recital, I did things like um, It Is Enough from Elijah, Mendelssohn's Elijah, which is this amazing aria that I loved. And I did um, maybe like the catalogue okay, aria but, from but, Don but, Giovanni. Regardless of, you know, whether or not you won the swimming competition, were you then moved? Like did something about music and its study move you? Did When did you start thinking about the possibility this might be the way that I can communicate? We, did that happen while you were studying or didn't it happen for ages? I mean, you went off and you, you went to fucking Whopper. You must have known you were a performer at some point. You weren't just. I mean, you moved. I can tell you exactly when I worked okay, out when I was a cool. performer because I was there for about um, 11 months and then I did, an, I did a performance as part. As you do, there's like a what they call performance practice where um, you can either do a song uh, or do a scene and I'd been working a little bit with Nick Enright. Amazing, amazing man um, for a lot of reasons. And, you know, I was in first year, I was like 21 years old and Nick was um, an amazing educator and an amazing writer. 
and a no bullshit kind of guy, but he was very generous with his spirit, and everyone just wanted a, a piece of Nick to yeah. you know to have his attention, and he was a huge influence on me because I did my first performance practice and I did this song, and I remember. Did like, you do it in what we would know as the Eddie Parfait voice of the present? I mean, did you? I don't know actually. That's a really good question. Because your know. voice is, um, I mean, I don't know what you do with your voice. But it's, you know, you're on pitch and you can sing and all of that, but there's, I don't know, do you weave discrepancies on purpose into your singing? I mean, there's something. I prioritise. There's something broken about your singing that I find emotional. Well, I prioritise acting and ideas and clarity over sounding nice. I mean, you're big on pathos. Well, I feel like sounding like a nice sound, like a well-developed nice sound is actually a barrier for people accessing ideas. And I spent two years at Melbourne University doing classical singing where everything had to be perfect, but no one ever thought about what they were saying. And I went to And, so, is, and so you were singing arias and whatnot. Yeah, but I was like, this is crazy. This, you know, this this is um this is a aria from Verdi's Macbeth. This this is a desperate situation, but I kind of um, didn't have the discipline to. I mean, I don't know how you can be accused of overacting if you're doing something from an opera. Well, because have you been to the opera? I mean, those people act big. Do they act big? But they but they prioritize their technique and their sound. Well, and I I sacrifice that for meaning, which is fine. And I don't think they were wrong. Sacrifice everything for meaning. I say, mm. or an attempt at at transmitting. It, you know. But anyway, so please go. So when I got to um, Whopper, Nick Enright was a really big influence influence in terms of like acting through. But why song. did you go? Why did you go all the way across the, the nation to go to this school that does produce stars? You know, I mean, people go to Whopper for a reason. To get away from a girlfriend. Oh, seriously, that was yeah, it. Yeah, that was one of the big reasons. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was stuck in a rut. I had a girlfriend. I just it it wasn't right, and I and I didn't like I didn't it, have how, the language to get out of it. How wasn't it right? It was just I was nineteen years old, and it was too committed too soon, and there was a lot of. Was she from Mentone? No, no. You know, and she's she was a great girl, but she was dealing with a lot of heavy family stuff, and she wanted to lock some stuff down and like lock like perfect. marriage and kids oh, and stuff. Yeah, and right. Yeah, it was it was a really heavy situation because her. She had a mother with um, a beautiful mum, I loved her, who had um, terminal cancer. Oh, fuck me. And she wanted her mum to see, I totally understood it. She wanted her mum to see her grandkids before she passed. And so that was very heavy for me. And D- Dude, you're excused. I mean, I feel terrible and it would have been very nice if you could have donated the rest of your life and your seed to make an older lady happy, but you can't. Yeah, not, and not it wasn't even about that. No. It was my first. I didn't have my first serious girlfriend until I was nineteen, and that was that was her. And so you were such a late bloomer. Yeah, yeah, but I was busy doing stuff, you know, and, and I don't regret that. I was like busy doing stuff. So that was like getting to Perth was a was a way of kind of. Did you breaking break her out. heart? Um. I, uh, yeah. Probably. Yeah. Yeah, you didn't talk to her again or? No, I've talked to her since then and she's fine, she's happy, she's fine, yeah. Did she end up having children? 
Yeah. Good. Good. Um, but ironically, for all the pressure, I had kids before she did. So <sighs> it's it was a very weird thing. And because it was my first relationship, I didn't quite know, you know, is this normal? What are my boundaries? Do I put up with it? And it was just like it was a, it was a very new experience for me. I can't imagine reproducing or thinking about reproduction at 19. I mean, I had an abortion at 17. It's like yeah. it was just not on. I mean, no. You know, I mean, that might sound very selfish and, and it is very selfish, but, I mean, you, you're working out who you are. You're still a baby. And look, I knew, I, I, I knew where I wanted to go. I've always, even if I don't know specifically where I'm going, I've always had a sense of where what, I... What, what do you mean by that? You imagined yourself in what sort of vague situation. So you had a sense of where you wanted to go. You didn't know what medium or, or, or whatever. What do you mean? You wanted to be surrounded by what? Like what kind of feeling? Um, I wanted to be inside the theatre community, making theatre being uh, at that at that point. I wanted to be um, an actor. I wanted to be working with great people, great directors and making. I wanted to be a performer. Because I mean, the first, you told me about the first vinyl you bought, but the first CD you bought was Sondheim, right? Yeah, it was Company, the yeah. original, the original um, cast recording of Company, and, and I listened to that so many times. And I every part, every note of that show is in my DNA. Good. Well, this is one of the reasons. Which is you're weird because I wasn't married, but now you know I, I go back and listen to it now, and it has. Hey, I'm not a jet, but you know anything Sondheim is usually good, right? I yeah. Mean, I mean, I don't understand. Like he wrote the lyrics for West Side Story, right? Mm-hmm. And and I mean, f- somehow they're really resonant. I mean, I don't understand anything about you know gang warfare in in, in New York City in the mid century. I mean, it's beyond me. But I of mean, course. oh, he's great. You know, great lyrics. Like when you're a jet, you're a jet all the way from your first cigarette to your last dying day. And was, I think that was the his internal rhymes, and that is really the when jet. Cigarette, it's all sits in there in a really smart way. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know music, and I was very bad at poetry analysis too. But I, I think it's like his scansion is really amazing as a lyricist. He doesn't try to try to place lyrics in a way that you would sing them that would be unnatural in the way you would stress them in speech. You know? Mm, yeah, yeah. Like you have to have the emphasis on the right. Okay, syllable. so was it you know was it raw musical talent or was it the love of these soundtracks or perhaps, you know, your parents took you to musical comedy or musical theatre? It's a combination. I just felt like I just knew at the the time I knew I wanted to get out of Melbourne and everyone that I was friends with, and I was at Melbourne University doing classical singing, a lot of my friends were studying music theatre at like Monash University at the Performing Arts Department. They were really into music theatre. Every t- they would talk about Whopper all the time. It's so hard to get in, and all mm. these. Well, it is right. Well, I guess, yeah. But people get in. Well, you did. I mean, and Hugh Jackman did, and Tim Minchin did, and. But it's that thing, like, it's like they only take a small amount of people. It's really competitive. You can't. You probably but won't get in. It is. And it's I'm like, like well, you why be... can't that person be me? You know what I mean? That's that, well, that's I mean, my attitude. Clearly, you got some talent, dude. But um. I'm wondering what led you, was it like, so you say you have a sense of where you wanted to go and was it just I want to be, I am show people, was it like you wanted to run away with the carnival? Because, I mean, I like I don't have any talent as a performer or 
or anything, but I I still wanted to be with show people. I wanted to be with freaks. I wanted had, to fund. I wanted to fundamentally change my life. That's yeah. what I wanted to do. I mean, my because I was. I ended up being a bright kid. My parents said, "Oh well, she can be the first in our family to go to university. She can be a lawyer." And with all that pressure and like a complete lack of interest in the law, I mean, I ran away and joined the carnival as as well. Like I found a job in radio. I mean, it was like I was Did so. You get good school results at high school. Oh, very uneven, dude. Very fucking uneven. Like, great and terrible. I mean, just the things I was was interested in, I did really well, and the things I didn't give a fuck about, I I mean, I got into uni and shit. I mean, it was nothing exceptional. But, I mean, it was more, I was driven, and I just, I feel so fucking bad for people around that age range now. I, I, and I don't think that they would have the opportunities that that we did in our time, but being 18, 19 and feeling a sense of what might come and what you might express, produce, do with the rest of your life, whether it's arts or whatever it is, there's a very, for certain kind of kid or perhaps many kinds of kids, there's a sense of wanting to find a community of people, not necessarily from your, your culture or your class, but like people you imagine to be like-minded. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm kind of also wondering, so yes, you were driven away by circumstance, um, the expectation that you would soon become a good father, a, probably a good provider. and, and, and I wasn't a, thinking about any of that stuff no, at that point. No, of course not. Of course, I mean, how could you? You know, you had things to say. You didn't know what they were. I mean, you were a kid and you're an artist, so you're selfish, you know, and you should be. Egocentricity is important in anything that you produce that you're, you're, you're passionate about. You must permit yourself that. But um, I'm wondering if part of it was I wanted I want to find a community of, of similar misfits. Of course, I want. I was like, uh, why? Why I can sing? I feel like I got comic chops. And you, you could sing from quite a young age, right? Well, so. I, got, I, I was getting singing lessons. I was, I'm not a great technical singer. I was in a class but with I mean, who amazing cares? singers. I mean, some of my favourite, like speaking as a, you know, a schlub, as a person who appreciates, you know, just I guess the cruder art forms, or the, like my all my favourite singers, all the singers that move me, none of them are anything like technically perfect. And, you know, one of the great, of course, they prioritise clarity and meaning and intention over sounding nice. And one of the great records for me is like, um, I mean, I don't like a lot of the stuff that came after, but Transformer by Lou Reed. Oh, yeah. Right? And, I mean, I think Brian Eno produced it, but, and I think David Bowie was involved and, and probably in 1971 if I had done a record as a three-year-old with, Eno and Bowie will probably sound good too because those guys are amazing. But, I mean, Reed's voice and also in the Velvet Underground, of course. I mean, what has that guy got, like a half-octave range? Or what did that guy have, like a half-octave range? Like, I mean, Lou Reed didn't do a lot of notes. No. And still. But he was inside the music in the studio. That's what happened. And and he had the I right saw him live. around him. Like, I saw him live. He was great. Even live, he was great. I mean, he had the most incredible band. I saw him in 2000 in Sydney. Amazing. When you think about A Perfect Day, 
you don't think, oh, well, isn't Lou Reed an amazing singer? You're like, that is is a incredibly compelling musical idea that is brilliantly written. And you don't go, oh, well, you know, it's like Andrea Bocelli or Luciano Pavarotti. Mm. You know, like it's not about the vocal performance, but then it is also about the vocal mm. performance because it's about how that person sells that song. Yeah. I know, I mean, before you, I was just sort of thinking about things that I love, like before you came over today, how was it go? Mm. Um, I had what's going on. Like, I mean, very fine voice, of course, Marvin Gaye, but it's not perfect. Course, I mean, not. and that, but that whole record, I mean, it's such a, um, one travels through it. And I mean, inner city blues, you know, make you mm-hmm. want to holler. I mean, fuck me. Like all the great singers for most of us are not technically perfect. It's fuck that. Well, I think we're, um, this is another, an, another category, but we're being duped by music production now where Melodyne and Autotune are, Correcting people's voices to make them perfect, and oh, so yes. I we're mean, now I, listening to like kind of robotic voices. And yeah, I mean, I don't mind auto tune uses an obvious effect; it's quite fun. Yeah, like do you remember when it came out and then Cher did that song? Like Cher had. Do a, you really? Yeah. I mean, I, that whole record is great. You're like, good um, on you, Cher. Yeah. And the fact that somebody convinced her to do pseudo techno in that time was hmm. great, and fucking love it. Um, so that's good. But, I mean, I wanted to ask you, you know, remember Glee? Remember when Glee was a thing? Yeah, the TV show. That was totally auto-tuned, right? Yeah, it was. What was, the fuck was with that? It was a very influential show, I think, I in know. terms of how we accept what we hear. Yeah. Pro- probably good for the musical theatre genre, I mean, I guess. I don't know. Um, but um, I actually think the opposite. I think if you auto-tune cast recordings... You actually auto-tune life out of it a little bit. Yeah, you do. But I'm sure they run Melodyne over everything because Melodyne is the most insane um, plug-in where you can literally get an entire song and isolate one part of it, even if it's a saxophone part or a or a bass part, and you can shift the pitch of that. It's extraordinary what it can do. Yeah. I mean, so you have had in acting and in music, you know, years of both formal and informal training. But even you would say, you know, I mean, especially you would say, okay, so the, the, like learning the rules, learning musicology, all that stuff is, um, and having some grasp of, of of musical notes as they appear. I mean, all that stuff has helped you, but it's still, you know, there's got to be the human grunt there for people to respond to, right? Yeah, I think it's a combination of um, having good years. And then spending a lot of time at it, and and then seeing your stuff performed by a lot of different people. Like from the very first time I got to Whopper, I put my hand up to write stuff, and I'd never written for the musical stage before. And I was twenty one years old when I got to Whopper. I'd never written again, a music again, song. a little late, you know. Like, yeah, I mean, you're probably one of the older people in your class, right? But it's weird. I thought like visual art was my form. I thought I'm. This is where I'm going to be able to just like slay. And then I realized that I didn't have anything to say and it was about, you know, it was it was a very passive medium, where, which is I love visual art, but like people come and experience. There's no way of getting in people's faces, no language, there's no words. And when I found songwriting, especially songwriting for yeah. theatre. And you do popular stuff. You write for the folk. I mean. Well, it's ideas. I, wanted, I, did, I didn't want any 
grey areas. I wanted to express an idea or an argument. But, I mean, the thing about visual art is um, unfortunately it can be enjoyed only by a few. Like I, you know, I mean, apart from the fact I can't see very well, in order to understand an exhibition I need to go through it with a curator or an expert. Right. I mean, I just don't. It's a language. Yeah. You know, and the way that it's evolved and, you know, to understand why all of a sudden there's all these fucking Marina Abramovich clones, you know, videotaping themselves, being traumatised, to appreciate some of that shit and a lot of it is shit, you have to understand how conceptual art got there. And and that-, that If you're talking about performance art, I have very little time for yeah, performance but I mean, art. Okay, performance art, conceptual art, you still have to understand- back to at least Mar- Marcel Duchamp, right? And I, I'm speaking slightly out of my ass here. I mean, only because occasionally I'm- Because that's your Twitter, Twitter profile Well, I picture. mean, I love that work, um, uh, the, the Armat work, Fountain, which yeah. is regarded by art critics who should probably know as the most important work of the, the 20th century, which is Duchamp's so-called ready-made series where he just took things from life and- and made them art. And, like, okay, sure, now that's nothing, but at the beginning of the 20th century it was quite something. And Yeah, I mean, but, the, but the works themselves aren't important. It's the idea of the work. So, like, if you buy Duchamp's toilet, you could probably spend, like, $20 million and go, this is the toilet. But I'm like, the art is the fact that he put it in a yeah, gallery. I mean, you know. It's this, not the toilet. Yeah, I mean, no, of course. And and this was the revolutionary thing and about it. And a person made that toilet. But Shouldn't I, they get credit? But, I, you know, I mean, I like Dadaists and I like people who stick up the middle finger and, and this guy, like even though I know nothing really about visual art, I mean this guy who says art should be pissed on, art is a latrine, art is whatever. I mean, actually taking an object and... I mean, found object sculpture, like everyone and their dog in Brunswick does it now, right? But, I mean, 19, 19 ugh, around the time of the First World War anyway, I mean, to do it then, at the beginning of the 20th century, can you imagine? I mean, you know, you know about the history of Melbourne and when there was that kind of like outrage when, you know, the, the sort the of- golf bought blue poles. Oh, well, no, before that, but when the, like the post-impressionist community in Melbourne did an exhibition- that was like, you know, that painted on cigar boxes and, and stuff. And, I mean, outrage in the art world was not a difficult thing yeah. for, a, for a long time. And, I mean, I just think this rejection of art from actually a fine artist was, I mean, it's just the punk of it that appeals to me. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. But, I mean, like. But you can't hold on to the object it's the idea that's amazing, you know, that's... Oh, this infinitely reproducible, like, I mean, so... But the uh, art world would, would want you to spend a lot of money on Duchamp's little, you know, vial of shit. But you'd be like, it's not actually about that. It's about well, I mean, the Duchamp, conversation about what, what art can be. Yeah, I mean, Duchamp would have agreed, I'm sure. But, I mean, this idea of, like, you know, like him actually saying art can be infinitely you know, reproducible, I mean, even before, you know, we had mechanical reproduction for artworks. Like, like Warhol and- Do you know the, um, you probably do, like the Walter Benjamin essay, like Walter Benjamin, amazing guy, committed suicide, was one of the thinkers, Marxist actually, harangued by the, the Nazis. He died very young, leaving 
just a few extraordinary essays and he writes an essay called um, Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Do you know this? No, like before mechanical reproduction existed? No, 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 no. He has actually written this essay while mechanical reproduction is a thing and, you know, he has this view that, um, you know, being able to see a work outside of the context of the gallery and, and you know, changes the value of art, changes the... He was wrong about a lot of things and he ended up having this great fucking debate with um, another really brilliant guy called Adorno. But, I mean, but, no, I'm talking about, like, so it wasn't until in Europe, in, in European culture, until, like, the 1940s that somebody actually sort of started making clear statements about what reproduction meant for everything, like art, you know, like the thing. It's just like for me when Duchamp does that, like with the, the, the pissoir, like he makes a fucking urinal art mm. It's and he doesn't even sign it with his own name. He signs it, it fucking like very prescient, like very much like what was that guy on to know so much of what the 20th century would be in a time where international flights were just beginning and, and radio communication was just beginning and and mass production was just beginning and he says this thing about it's all a toilet. I mean, I love that, right? And but it's what, absolutely a toilet. But, I mean, what also I mean is fucking, you know, visual art. Like I, I, I know people who like it. I even have a well-to-do friend who collects it and – but it's like beyond most of us. We don't have the literacy, the time, the eye. A visual art exists. It shouldn't, but it does. It exists as a class filter. Like, you know, you go to a gallery and you're required to look at an art at a work for a certain amount of time. I don't think it I think I don't think you're I don't I actually think that visual art is experienced by a huge amount of people. I'm talking about Melbourne. It far exceeds sport in this city. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, like, uh, you know, we know in Australia that arts events actually out-ticket sports events and particularly in Melbourne. Like, nationally, arts events out-ticket um, sports events. But, but do you read the little plaques and do you do you agree? I read the little plaques about the didactics. This is, this is what the artist was intending and I'm the, like, I believe they, I believe they're, they're called Didactics, the Are they? yeah. Um, I was desperate to know for those. some years what the screeds at art galleries were called, and no one would tell me. And then I, I recently went to the Ian Potter NGV. Oh yeah, and met a very nice curator. That's got a great collection. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I went to this really fucking great exhibition actually, which was about the 1930s. It was called Brave New World. And um, it's it's I think it's finished now. It's really really good. Um, really, if you you didn't see it right, but it was like, yeah, it was very eddy. It was very much about Australia's past, and it was about a period. I know that you're thinking about right now because you're in the middle of um working toward King Kong. On like the 1930s, like the kind of depression era. Yeah, and the things that were happening in the 1930s. Fuck me. But this was a very popular exhibition, so I kind of got it, and it included a lot of art, uh, like advertising work, and um, and I went through with the curator because I was lucky enough to be 
But, I mean, that's not the experience that most of us have when we go to galleries. I know people go to blockbuster shows, and um, but I also know because I've been one of these people and members of my family have been among these people that you go and you look at something and you're performing understanding it, right? Like I don't – like I can't say that I can even look at a – at a Jackson Pollock or whatever, and fully understand what abstract expressionism in America meant in the middle century. I don't fucking know. And without um, having a visual context and understanding the language and what led Pollock there and what came after and what came before, I mean, I don't know. And I don't understand. I don't understand. I mean, most of us don't understand. We can pretend to be moved as though art has some, visual art has some inherent qualities. I don't think we have to be, like, um, educated to um, be convinced to like something, but I think it's important to understand where um, the progression and the history of visual art has come at the point that you're seeing it. So, like, I love, for example, Rothko paintings. I, I actually quite like contemporary American Visual artists. By contemporary, you mean the 1950s? Yeah, so like, you know, <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, contemporary. Yeah, that, that's, what, that's what, I think that's what that means. Like, I really love Rothko. Modern. Lichtenstein, I'm like, okay, I get it. Andy Warhol, I get the context. I think, I mean, in. like Andy Warhol. But Andy Warhol's a fucking fake man. Yeah, dude. But sure. But, I mean, a lot of us get Andy. Right, like we can get Andy without knowing anything. The Truman Capote quote about Warhol, I think, is the what is it? most accurate. He's a sphinx without a secret. Oh, that's great. You know, um, th- this could um, equally describe many politicians and leaders in in many sectors. Um, but, but he y- stole <laughs> the work of the guy that created the Campbell's soup can logo and um, label. So all of these amazing multi-million dollar artworks that um, um, he's made were made by somebody else. What about the guy that made the Campbell's Soup Cam logo? Well, I mean, you know, with every commodity. He's not an artist, but Andy Warhol is because he put it in the gallery. I Just why does Mark Zuckerberg have so much money? You know, when, I mean, a lot of, you know, what he does relies on the labour of others. I mean, a lot of it in the global south, you know, the people that are making sure that our Facebook feeds are safe for children. But he's not a replicator. He's not a a taking of of imagery from one place. There are some people who would disagree about where the code came from, but, I mean, this is just what people do. I mean, they purloin, um, they own... Um, they aggressively, but I mean, that was part of like, you know, so I'm speaking as somebody who can't see very well and doesn't know anything about visual art, except when somebody's showing the middle finger to visual art. And that's when I like it. And that's why a lot of us can appreciate Warhol. Cause it's like, oh my God, he made something I can get in the supermarket art. And, you know, just as you said with Duchamp, like, um, it's amazing that he took, like, what about the guy who designed the 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 the, the uh, Parisian pissoir? Like, what about the to- what about the fucking plumber? Like, where's the plumber? Mm. Why does Duchamp get all the glory? Because Duchamp said, "Fucking put this in your gallery." And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm a big fan of Warhol. I am very grateful for the Velvet Underground record. Thank you, Andy. I don't think it would have been as good without him. You know, he made them take Nico right. 
like he saw what you know Lou and John and Mo and the other one had and 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 forced them right i just see andy warhol as the the lamest foyer elbow grabber you can imagine like i feel like the guy is like just desperately wanting to be i see him associated as a, and famous i see him as a polish kid from pittsburgh who had the same coloring as me who was relentlessly bullied as a teenager who turned perhaps his resentment of the unattainable American dream into money, and I don't despise him for that. But I don't love him either. I don't valorise him. But And like saying, so as we apparently are talking about visual art, you know a lot about it. You wanted to be a visual artist. I know nothing. I'm speaking only as a casual observer. Jeff Koons, right? So mm-hmm. this is the next, I mean, like, I don't even want to talk about Damien Hirst. He just shits me. I don't know how to talk about Damien Hirst. I literally don't know how to talk about him. Um, but Coons, right? Like, so wrong, um, but so good in in some ways. And do you know the word puppy? By by Coons, yeah. No. Um, so it's this enormous, like, um, three or four story high plastic dog that looks like it could be a Sanrio character or something very cute, and half of it is this beautiful molded plastic and. It's totally cute, and then the other half um, has dirt on it, and and flowers come out of it when it's in when the installation is in full bloom. I saw it at the Museum of Contemporary Art. It was outside, available for everyone to see on Sydney Harbour in about two thousand, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, he's an asshole, right? And he gets other people to make his work, apparently, as a Da Vinci did. You know, and, and a lot of the Renaissance masters, and, Warhol, yeah. and he's well, and Warhol, and you know, every time you know throughout the twentieth century, it was like, "Hey, you didn't make this." And it's like, "Nor did the masters of the Renaissance." I'm making a statement. Yeah, I mean, yeah, whatever. You're lazy, but um, and then inside there was a Coons exhibition because I saw this puppy and I thought, "Oh fuck, I'll go in. It's free." And you know, and at the time, um, I think he was still married to Cicciolina. Ilona Staller? I don't know who that is. Cicciolina. Is it like the, the restaurant? No, the restaurant is named after her. There's a restaurant in Melbourne yeah. called Cicciolina. I know. It's actually my first or second favourite restaurant in Melbourne. Um, yeah, it's iconic. Oh, right. You're a bit too young. Fish cakes. Um, to know who Cicciolina is. But, I mean, my God. Okay, where is it? She was in local government. In Rome, um, she was a star of adult cinema. Right. She was very blonde and she um, was, um, uh, okay, so this, this, this girl, do you, do you not know this girl? Cicciolino. Alona Staller is her real name. And, no. Um, you, 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 don't, you don't know her. No. Oh, my God. We'll see. This is the 10-year age gap between you and me. I am pretty busy, though. I so. know. I know. But, I mean, she's fucking important, right? Is she? Well, I feel like if she was important, that I would have read some. No, she's. What's she's, she done? She's Hungarian-Italian and um, she was married to Coons for most of the 90s. So she was his muse. She was always Does going. Does that bullshit still happen, that muse bullshit? 
What do you think about that? It's Actually, fucking bullshit. Let's it's not- a made-up thing to fuck women, right? Isn't that what it is? I don't know. I kind of felt like I had a male muse for a while. There was a particular person. It wasn't like a sex thing or anything, but, like, he really – I addressed my writing to him when I was writing it. Like, he has no knowledge of this, but you've not had a person that – Sometimes in your life that you've addressed things to. I mean, I ne- I would never say to somebody, "I've made you my muse," but um, I mean, often to focus on a. Pr- I mean, look, I've only ever done one one thing vaguely artistic in my life, but while I was writing it, I had a person in mind. You don't do that. Well, I don't want to get all like Steve Price and go because I don't get it. It's wrong. But it's not an experience I have. I completely appreciate it if it's other people's experiences. I just never had the experience of going. It's a mental trick, dude. I find it's almost like the absence of people that makes art for me. My muse is someone that just goes away and gives me a lot of space. Sure. Um, sometimes people have an intended audience in mind and that might take the form of a single person. Yep. But. You've been refining what you do for a long time. I I think that you have been quite confident in what you do for a long time. Some of us are babies in terms of creativity. I think you may be not – you don't need that. Like maybe you don't need that. I've just – over time, just through necessity, not through any like um, virtue – I'm just self-sufficient. I just have to make it happen on my own. Okay. Um, so I can't imagine the idea of bringing someone in that inspires me because my inspiration is just like me and a piano. Like there's no one else there. As soon as someone else is in there or even if I know you someone. You never think of somebody who might like to seduce or amuse or, 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 or entertain or invigorate when you're writing work. Yeah, the, the fat woman, the fat lady. Which Which lady? The fat lady, you know, um, uh, that novel Franny and Zooey? Oh, um, Salinger? Yeah. Yeah, I've never fucking read it, but I know of its existence. Yeah, it's that it's that imaginary person that understands it, that needs it, that considers it. That's the person you write it for. They're imaginary. They're completely made up. Oh, I mean, I've written for dead people before or whatever. I mean, some of us do that. Like we, we're faced with a long-form project and we, we want to do it. And, I mean, some of us think, well, I'm broadcasting to you or I'm making art for you. Or I mean, some or people think ca- that. We all think, who cares or whatever. But, like, you know, when I was doing um, the big con with Max Gillies, Literally the entire audience hated me. Like it was the first experience of having an audience, not just like- Because um, you weren't Max? No, because I wasn't Max. Well, I wasn't Max, A, and B- Max is a good guy. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. He's really an amazing, and I tell you what, a good old commie. So the opening night of um, the big con at the Sydney Opera House, I sang gay people shouldn't get married. And I'd experienced Jesus. people not liking um, my material before, but I'd never experienced the opposite- of like um, laughter, which is actually like this crazy psychological hole that opens up with the entire uh, you, can, audience. Is it, is it audible or is it in, no, in some other way sensible? It's obviously quite quiet, oh. but it's also just like it's just that you can feel the energy of everyone going inwards and rejecting it. Did you and fuck it, the show? Uh, on that night I did because I'd never had that experience before and so wow. I didn't – I trampled on my lines and I didn't commit to the material and I, I was flustered. And then 
it happened every night. So I just eventually embraced it. Yeah. And just I imagined the fat lady, that there was one person in the audience that got the absurdity and the okay, irony. Okay, well, whether, of what it's, was going a, whether on. it's a real person or whether it's an imaginary person, you you understand. I mean, and I think the, the muse concept, yes, of course, it's very sexist. And I mean, it seemed like, you know, an elaborate way for, you know, Picasso to put his brick in a lot of holes, for example. But, um, you know, I mean, certainly you agree that haute couture as obscene as it is, like that that is a form of art, right? You accept oh that. Oh, my God. I think it's absolutely a form of art. I mean, my God, you, you're going to live with your family in, in New York City. Would you go to Fashion Week to have a look if you could? Yeah, I think I would. Yeah, Actually, fucking, if I got invited, I don't know. But I, I know that um, uh, Lucy went to the Alexander McQueen exhibition. Yeah, it's my wife. And I had the kids, well, um, Kitty at the time, and I was kind of exhausted and I was like, fashion's not my thing, you go and see it. And Lucy came out transformed from the Alexander McQueen retrospective. It was like. No, well, you know, she's, I mean, I've, I've seen her before. She's a very well-dressed lady. She's got an eye for style. I have a few. Um, Colleagues and a few friends who know that stuff, and it's a language that is unavailable to me, like the language of visual art, like the language of music, and I do fucking admire people who can understand what a particular drape means or what a particular bag means and how it came from history. I mean, I know we're talking about elite commodities made for a few. Still, I admire those artists. I admire the models very much. And um, the idea of a muse in fashion, and it it I seems I get that I get that like, completely. No, absolutely. Like um, you know, Givenchy and and Audrey Hepburn, for right. example. Very I'm, interesting woman, Audrey Hepburn. A, a very interesting designer, and I mean, she was you know raised an asylum seeker in a camp where she didn't have enough food, and mm-hmm. I mean, and this is. One of the reasons for her tiny silhouette, which is, I mean, okay, so she's responsible for the manic pixie dream girl, but like, fuck me, what a girl. And are you with me? Yeah. Breakfast at Tiffany's is a truly great film. And yeah. in my view, actually sees the book. Well, she was herself like that. She, that's. But dressed by her designer and. Mm-hmm. That muse artist relationship. I mean, that was extraordinary, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, fashion, like it's bullshit. I mean, and I don't think you wear fashion clothes ever. I certainly don't. Like, do you ever wear fashion? Um, no. And the wife oh, never well, gets I've, you up I've, in I've, something I've, nice? I've worn, I've worn some really nice suits before. Mm. They were like, um, at awards nights and shit. Yeah, but I, I weirdly I got asked to be like um, an ambassador for Henry Bucks. You know, in the city, Henry. But Bucks it's not weird. I mean, you're 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 a handsome dude. You know, you're like you know like. Well, I was for like, a lot of people. A lot of people would say Eddie Parfait, fuckable, right? Well, I was kind of like you know like standard suit size then. So like I did it. I was like, what do you mean then? Weird. You're still a. No, no. Fucking Have you got a guard? Yeah, yeah. Can't uh, see it. You're wearing a baggy T-shirt. Yeah, well, that's part of the plan. Me, I'm very vain. I know the menopause is coming any minute, so I do the exercise. Yeah, right. I'm kind of like every now and then there must be a, a limit because every now and then I look at a photo and I go, 
No. What was your character's name in, in Offspring again? Mick. And what was what was Cat Stewart's character's uh, name? Billy. Billy. Whoever did the wardrobe on that show, by the way, and I've been trying to pay a bit more attention to that because I um do a lot of telly criticism and I watched every season you were in. Fucking five of them, dude. Chisholm. Is it Michael Chisholm? David Chisholm? Oh, actually, I, I want to give mad props to him because- I mean, no, but the cost, the, the, the wardrobe on that show, she is perfectly dressed. Like- the 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 way she is dressed is just so her character and it looks like she's kind of in clothes from a shop like Q or something. Yeah. And they're always a little bit too big for her. And, I mean, I've met Kat Stewart and I've seen her on stage and she's a very slender, rangy, tall kind of gal. Like she's almost, yeah. almost gangly in person, looks perfect on screen. Michael Chisholm. Right. And the way she was dressed... Like she just looked like a woman who was hard to please because nothing fit her, including her clothes, even though you knew they were small size clothes, but nothing off the rack fit her. And so your character is like she only hung out with you because you were like massively good in the sack, right? Like that's part of their thing. That they had a yeah, they had a strong sexual Because you were, you were a doofus. Like she was also invested in the potential of him. Eventually being a success. Yeah, but she, I mean, you, like, and this is the genius of the writing and I, I just can't believe I didn't watch Offspring for so long because it's actually really good. It is. Are you proud of the, the shit you did? Um, yeah, I, well, I, yeah, I am. And I, I, my part was very small in the massive cog in the wheel that is um, television. Yeah, but, I mean, you, you know, you, you formed a part of it. You were like... You know, you became the boyfriend that a lot of us knew or had. Well, Cat Stewart and I were very lucky because it was a big production with lots of cameras and crew, but they created this second unit in season one about midway through where they would pick up scenes and they basically relegated all, and that was a very small thing. It was like. I'm um, sorry, what's the second unit? Second pick up unit scenes? is like, um, so the main unit. Telly talk, telly talk, kids. Let's talk telly talk. So Here on Neckers in the Badge, we, we haven't done anything even vaguely Marxist, but I'm just too interested in what this young chap's saying. Right. So the main unit, you have like maybe three or four cameras. You have all of the people that are carting in the dollies that the cameras move along. They're moving the lights. It's huge. There's catering. There's everything. It's like maybe 50 food people. food Yeah, it's great. Oh, Good. But then they would have these pickups on the second unit where it would be like a kind of a skeleton crew. So you'd have like a handheld camera. The director would come. Um, you'd have one guy to do the lights. You'd have one guy swinging a boom, which means doing sound. More than you get at the and ABC. And then you have a recordist doing that. But we're talking like a very small amount of people. Yeah. And because there were less people, you yeah. had this amazing freedom. But the, I mean, your relationship um, with Billy was really, I mean, it resonated, right? It was, um, it felt real and it was quite long lasting. Yeah, because we got to act. We got to actually act and all that day girl, on second unit. That you know. fucking girl, she can act her tits off. She's amazing. She's fucking amazing. She's born to play Lady Macbeth in a way that no one's ever played it. I think she's one and of the better actors in Australia, I've got to say. I've got massive experience. Respect for Kat Stewart. Oh fuck, she's incredible and so sweet, right? Like I've interviewed yeah. her before after and she was on the and vulnerable and raw and yeah. awkward and weird and and 
Like, if you know this show Underbelly, she was on the very first series of Underbelly. She was one of the things that made it good. And, I mean, in my view, the primary thing that made it good, she she played the partner of a Melbourne crime boss. And, oh, my God, she played it well. She played it with artificial nails. She chopped up amphetamines in a totally convincing way. But she just no, she's inhabited the- this character. She wore velour. She was, she has the most, like, you know, classically beautiful face. She's blessed. She could make it look ugly in a second. And that's something that a lot of women actors don't want to do. She could, you know, the way she can, like, make her face and also on Offspring with you, like, look totally unappealing. Cat Stewart is brave and just would throw herself into some weird stuff. Some of the takes she would go utterly crazy and she'd be like, oh, my God, that's that's underbelly coming out. But, like, she has a switch, an acting switch, where it's like everything goes in there and then when it's not, she's completely cool, chilled, fun. And, like, you know, it was a bit weird because in the beginning we had to be, we were supposed to be sexy. You were sexy. I mean, you were sexy. You you guys were hot. Like well, it, was it was supposed to be conventionally, bit- se- conventionally sexy. It was but supposed you, to be this. Like- what's conventionally sexy? I mean, were Rock and Doris conventionally sexy? Like, I mean, a gay man and perhaps a gay woman, and and they generate some of the most extraordinary electricity ever on screen. And none of it was conventional. Like, do you like Rock and Doris? I mean, they're perfect, right? From the early sixties, those those romantic comedies. Yeah, that- right. Well, I I felt like we were written to be conventionally sexy, but we actually. But they wouldn't have cast you guys if you were written to be conventionally sexy. I don't know. We we just we were both like whether through a combination of like just our sensibility or prudishness or whatever was going on. We were like. That's not our bag. And so the first thing was supposed to be like a role play thing in the in the pilot. I was like um, landscaping a garden, which is hilarious. And um, it is funny because you were cast as quite a physical character. You were um, a man without uh, a, a chosen trade or profession. Yeah. And so you ended up doing a lot of physical work while you were working out what you were going to do. So Dude, you, the amount so, of homes I fucked up, like whippersnippering people's. Like, yeah, I mean, I can't, you know, I don't think. Terrible. I don't think any perfect. I, and. And DIY, and so I watched that, and like knowing your work and your 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 other work is this sort of like fairly heartbreaking um, singer songwriter, and it was just so weird because that's not. The, the, I mean, you must be a good actor to convince me um, to forget that it's you, and that you are a really <laughs> I know. physical all, handyman. All the um, all the traditional not, sexy stuff you? ended up falling to um, to Asha and her love interests, whether it was like you know. Um, but that's what titillated people. I mean, and she's very good too. I mean, of she's course, amazing at she's it. in everything Australian because she's fucking good. And we were like, we couldn't take ourselves seriously. I couldn't get her top. I couldn't get. Kat's oh my top god! Off. When that that Patrick dude died, fuck me! I yeah. had to have. Counseling. Did you? Because I met a lot of people that had to have counselling after that. Oh, you, you had fucking trouble because you had automated. I remember this. You had automated some kind of tweet, right? Because you, like Eddie, has you don't want to talk about it. I mean, no, it was, let's talk about it. It was I, funny. No, for the first time in my life, I hired this fucking guy, and this fucking guy like tweeted on the finale 
where like a, Patrick died. A beloved, the, what, a, did he, what did he tweet? A, it was fucking like, crazy. It was like something about you were appearing in Perth or some shit. And you got in all sorts oh of shit. Oh, my God. I mean, was, it was like it was in the Herald yeah. Sun. I think it was even front page. I mean, it was fucking such a non-story. Like, hey, Eddie Perfect tweets, you know, and it wasn't even Eddie Perfect. It was like you hadn't even automated it. You'd given it to some guy that I hope you don't employ again. Um, no, he's gone. Um, I, was in Bar- I was in Byron Bay on my own, no family, my kids and my wife at home because I was so worn out from just doing offspring and, and writing and I also knew that Patrick was going to die. Okay, so if you, don't, if you don't know what we're talking about, this is like a, like a big Australian TV network event. It's sort of like Ellen saying, I'm gay. So, you know, one of these big fictional TV events and everyone knew that something extraordinary was going to happen on this incredibly popular um, Everyone knew when someone was going to die su- because there was a promo su- that's who's going to die. Yeah, I mean, Channel 10 fucked that up and I understand that the writer, De- De- Deborah Oswald, it was, yeah. I mean, I think she was quite, or somebody in the show was quite annoyed by that because, I yeah. mean, the death is actually really good. I mean, as much as a television death can be because the death is unexpected, the death is every day, the death happens like death. And, yeah. um you see this man die um, unexpectedly, as people do, and in unglamorous surrounds without music, um, and it's very good. And so <laughs> um, you had not automated. I thought I just presumed you'd used Hootsuite or one of those apps that update stuff and you hadn't perhaps considered, but in no, fact you paid somebody to be in consideration. For the first time in my life I, I let someone else tweet on my behalf and it was. And so this coincided with this major television oh event which had been promoted as who's going to die and, like, people fucking loved Offspring. I mean, because it was really good for five seasons. Um, and, I mean, it was. I was so surprised, you know. I mean, if you haven't seen it and if you're all cynical about fucking mainstream culture, fuck you, it's actually good, like, and I don't like shit. Um, but, yeah, and so it was just something about your appearing in Perth. It was some chirpy tweet. Oh, uh, it was the worst. And, it, and like. And it was like, you know, people who rely on ticket sales or or customers or whatever, from fucking Coca-Cola to Eddie Perfect to fucking Hill and No One Razor. I mean, I'm on social media mostly to push my stuff at you. You know that. Like, I'm not there because I enjoy it. And, in fact, I have third-party software in the form of my partner. I'm not allowed on social media anymore because it does my fucking head in. I mean, I've had arguments with you on Facebook. Actually, I think my long-form argument with you on Facebook was – pretty much the end of my direct Facebook use because it was much better for us to discuss our oh, argument shut it down, privately, man. though, like, um, not with an audience. Yeah. You know, I mean, we were saying things about each other that were irrelevant to an audience and people were watching that. That, that was my most viewed post ever. Yeah, it's like because you were there. in public, yeah. And, I mean... I learnt more from you when I conceded your point in private, right? And, you know, you're a fucking artist. I'm just a journalist type of thing and I, you know, you have to think a lot and before you allow things to be 
seen in public. I'm not just going to, I mean, in this podcast, obviously, and it's your fucking choice to listen, um, you're to blame. But, I mean, I will say things off the top of my head here, but, I mean, normally, no. You know, normally it's a, a it's not art, but it's a, it's a presentation. It's a, you know, I mean, there's things that I want to write about, but I know that I can't for some months because I haven't investigated enough. And so anyway, long story short, there's all sorts of reasons not to just say what you feel, particularly if you're kind of known in any context or people are watching on social media. And and then you found yourself in this situation where somebody who is representing as you, and you're a everyday kind of bloke, you're not hugely rich or anything, you're a family guy who finds himself in sometimes extraordinary circumstances i'm sure it was kind of a weird thing for you to do to yeah it was weird and then and then chrissy swan um t- tweeted at me going oh, um um awesome. why did why did patrick have to die and i was so disconnected i was in i was like in this crazy you're weird in, just like you're hiding in from mid- the world you're in middle class hippieville yeah and you know i like to surf as i I think I might have mentioned, like, it's I'm a so very weird. bad surfer, yeah. but. Where did you, I mean, there's no surf in Mentone. Did you go to the peninsula when no, you were No, yeah, I went to the peninsula with my dad or, or to the surf coast of, like, you know, Janja. Can you can your dad um, surf? He was a boogie boarder, but he loves the ocean. Yeah, all yeah. the men in my family surf too because they grew up in Mullumbimby. Chrissy Swan was like, why did Patrick have to die? And I literally <laughs> tweeted back because Patrick was a cunt. Did you? Yeah. That's funny. Which I thought was really funny. Patrick was a bit of a cunt, though. Patrick had to die because he was a cunt. That's what I tweeted back to her. Oh. And then that did the massive rounds. And I was so disconnected. It was like, uh, you know. You were just cracking a funny. Yeah, I was in like a kind of a weird little shack and going to barbecues. Patrick was a little bit of a cunt. It's actually true. Oh, he's fine. I don't know why he had to die. He had to die because someone wrote that he died. I don't know why he, he died. Well, I mean, he died because he got a job in America, the actor, right? Yes, yeah. yes, but he was around for his death. What was the name of the actor again? Matt Lenevers. He's he's good. He's a great actor. I mean, I just, I mean, God, when he died. Uh, and she was hugging his chest. He's a beautiful guy. Fuck you, Eddie great Perfect. Eyebrows. You're a bastard. How dare you call Patrick a cunt. But this is very, very funny. And, I mean, but awful for you. And uh, I've discussed this before. I mean, Twitter is a peculiar thing. Like, not many people use it. And and you, it feels like the world. Is that what you Yeah, and you, yeah. you probably know that when you tweet, and you don't tweet often. No, I've stopped. Um, not, uh, not forever, but just. I mean, you used to be active at yeah. around about the same time I was active and we used to have conversations on Twitter and shit. But um, because it was fun and it was interesting, it was like having these this public badinage, you know, it was like, yeah. can I be funnier than Eddie Perfect? And, I mean, I got to speak to people like um, Pam Greer. Like she retweeted me once and Chuck D fucking retweeted me once and that was amazing. Wow. I mean, he is the epitome of public enemy, right? Yeah. Um, and you and, you know, other people I admire. And so it was fun for a while, but it's like hardly anyone uses it. It's mostly journalists looking for a story. Yeah, it's a very lazy kind of thing. And, like, fuck that. Like, it's a whole lot of journalists, mostly liberal journalists, trying to call someone out for tweeting the wrong thing. Yeah. Such as Patrick is a cunt. That's yeah. so funny that you did that. I've forgotten that. You're but, a little turd, aren't you? But it was so kind of like 
Does your wife like that you're a little turd? Um, you're a bit of an asshole, aren't you? I like that. Like, I mean, I say this with with, with real you, affection. What do you mean? Like, because I'm I, I'm a bit of a shit stirrer. Well, yeah. I mean, you like to show the middle finger a bit punk, right? Like, you're still a boy from Mentone who doesn't fit in and shit. Like, right? Uh, I don't know. Like, I I don't know. I, I like all people. I like to punch up, obviously, and I've got a like an a, a, a allergic reaction to bullshit. So, like, yeah, you want to engage the folk, and sometimes I want to break shit open. You know, let's just like, oh my gosh, I mean, that's the only thing. Like, can't we just like let's talk the truth? You know, sometimes really- or investigate what truth might mean. You, yeah, you, you know, I mean, speaking the truth. I don't know what the truth is. I mean, all I know not. is there's just perspectives, and you, you know, you can try to illuminate what you believe to be a valid perspective, but I mean. You're also a comedian and, you know, that's what you guys do. That's why I fucking love the form, which is, we have to admit, an American form. You would not be who you are without the USA. Yeah. I don't and, identify as a comedian at all. But you are way. a, you, well, okay, you write comic songs then. And in one couplet or whatever you call them, sometimes there will be, Perhaps more meaning than you intended, like the picture that you you, you did of your dad. But um, you know, all these people are reacting, and oh, this is a troubled child, and he has a you know fucking Oedipal relationship with his father, or whatever they said. I don't know what they said. I was on Easter Sunday for the first time in years, and I was like, oh, so you saw it this past Easter? Yeah, it's on on the wall oh, so in you've... Dad's house, and <laughs> I, I looked at it. Oh, and so I was you like... went to the the old house in the country for. Easter. Yeah, they've got it on the wall. I don't, I, I look, Do I, they I, go to mass on Easter Sunday, or um, are they not religious anymore? We don't. I, I don't think they are. But then I, we don't talk about religion. We we there. Do like, you take communion anymore to please them, or no, no, no? I took communion last November to please a Catholic member of my family. It, it seemed right. Right. I tried to commit to it. Well, of course, transubstantiation yeah. is such a load of fucking horseshit. Well, duh. I mean, I don't think anyone, including the Jesuit priests, who- it's symbolic. Hey, where's the wine gone? Where in mass? In communion. I've not been to mass for a long time. Okay, well, they don't give you wine anymore, and all of the stuff that we used to have to say back to the priest—that's all changed. It's such utter. Bullshit. But I was brought you up You say this as an artist who tries to fucking ritualise and explain everyday experiences, religion's just the same. Uh, yeah. Re- religion, the best thing you can say about religion is that it brings people together into a community. Yeah, that concept of the third place that's, you know not, that's the democratic. of the mm. Roman Catholic Church in terms of like if you actually look at the – life of Jesus Christ, the teachings of Jesus Christ as they're handed down in the New Testament. Amazing. Revolutionary guy, all about equality. Uh, there's a bit of shit in there, but, I mean, it's like, you know, like accepting Matthew, you know, we'll always have poor people. Oh, poor, poor people, they're doomed to be poor. I mean, it's not all perfect, but there are some very nice concepts like. Um, like it is far easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle is, than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is one of the worst things about the New Testament. That's um, the that, book of Matthew, right? Okay, but, I mean, that is 
one of the worst things because... Why? Well, that appeases the consciousness of the poor in life and it, and it says, don't worry, you'll be rewarded in heaven and all of the rich men will be in hell. I mean, it's appalling and ma- manipulative. It's it's like... Um, well, that's a weird way to interpret it. No, it's not a weird way to interpret it. It's a, it's a classically Marxist way of interpreting it. Uh, it's like, you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. No, it's not weird at all. It's like, so, you know, I mean... As most things, I mean, isn't that just saying that wealth and power corrupts? No, it's a way of pacifying poor people. I mean, it's a way of pacifying the masses. It's like, don't worry, you will be rewarded in the afterlife, you know. And then there's that other parable about I can't remember it from Sunday school about a rich man coming to heaven, and a poor man says to an angel, um, I can't remember where it is, but why are we celebrating this rich man? You know, he was so celebrated on earth because a rich man re- rarely comes to heaven. I mean, what do you think is the 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 function of that culturally but to tell poor people that they will be rewarded? I mean, it's a form of control. I mean, you think about, you know, how the Bible was wielded and how, I mean, it never developed in, in utter innocence. It was always, almost always a tool of the powerful I mean, you know, like people like us, like we couldn't even read it until the 19th century. I mean, late 19th century when we were actually literate. I mean, fucking whole Reformation and shit, like Bibles were not permitted in the hands of everyday people, the few everyday people that could read. So this is all handed down. And what comes to us is, well, you must be proud of having survival that is imperiled every day because the powerful, they'll be sent to hell. But the powerless, you, you'll be sent to heaven. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, I'm boring even myself, but this is an interpretation that many people have of the the social and economic function of, of these texts. Having said that, there is still a lot of beautiful stuff in Abrahamic religions. And all religions, I believe, have you know, what we can call the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I, mm-hmm. be- I believe this is a case in, in Dharmic religions as well. Like all the world's, it's a nice thing. Like don't. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. The other thing I really like about the Catholic traditions, well, you know, Aquinas and. Um, you talking about Thomas Aquinas? Uh, oh, sorry, Aquinas? it's Aquinas, yeah. right? It's not I think Aquinas. So, yeah. Oh, you're probably right. I, I, I always mispronounce people's names. Amazing guy. Yeah, and I mean, some of the, and the idea of loving thy neighbor, it's a really good idea. Like, okay, I would prefer as a, you know, I mean, I want, I would, I would not mind having faith. I just don't have any of it. I don't have a faith in a, a foundational truth or a final authority or a God or anything like that. I just can't find it in myself like I would like to. And I admire the faithful in many ways, particularly in this age, because it's it's really hard to be sincerely faithful in this age. Like it's it's a challenge, right? It's not an obligation as it was in the past. It's like a it's a daily ethical challenge to honor a God. I think it's always been a challenge for people to accept that you, stuff. You know, I mean, of course. So you did all arts at uni, right? Yeah. And so I did like human sciences. And 
Is it like humanities? Is oh, it yeah, thing? like political economy, anthrop- yeah, yeah, anthropology, yeah. that shit, right? English, yeah. of course, gender studies. But um, I studied theology in year twelve. Oh wow! I really liked that. Yeah. I'm sure you did, right? I'm sure it's fascinating. I've never done religious studies. One of the courses I did was anthropology, and I just because it was in my schedule, like I just I didn't even really know what anthropology was, and ended up having this great guy who was like a socialist and he said, I'm a, it was like many years ago and he was like, I am a white man of privilege and the reason that I'm telling you this is that we have to think about everybody in terms of where they came from and I'd never really thought about that before because I was a kid and, you, you know, I mean, and then in the second or third lecture he talked about anthropologists going to the Trobriand Islands in New Guinea because, you know, like throughout the 20th, early 20th century, like anthropologists really had, this relates to your point about religion, I promise, anthropologists really had a horn, like white racist anthropologists who have done so much damage mm. really have a horn for what they then considered to be primitive peoples and, you know, they write about them and stuff. And then they would go and they would report, oh, these people believe in fire gods and you know, they believe in rocks and and shit and they would, you know, report this very sincerely about these poor, naive natives who had these extraordinary beliefs. And then when anthropology, Western anthropology got a little bit wiser 30 or 40 years later and there'd been great movements in anthropology like anti-ethnocentric, participant, observer, don't condescend shit happening and they went, and they talked to the people and they were like, yeah, we just told that guy or that girl what they wanted to hear. And, I mean, Margaret Mead was one of these people, like, mm. you know, all these women saying, oh, you know, menstrual hearts, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, but somebody goes back and investigates menstrual hearts. Women just went to them for arrest. And, like, people are people, right? Like, I mean, everyone struggles with the idea of, like, a fucking god or a fucking volcano or, of course they do. you know, like um, the sun or whatever. I mean, it's all bullshit. And most people know this. Most people are like, like it, the people don't. But Jesus is not about God. Jesus is about humanism. Uh, it's absolutely about humanism. I don't agree. I mean, you can't think of Jesus without thinking about the Immaculate Conception. And, I mean, Jesus is a prophet you know, he's God's, um, rep- he is God in the Catholic Church, as you know, like he is, and please try to explain to me what the Holy Trinity actually is, because I don't, fu- what's the spirit, dude? I don't even get it. Ask a priest to explain it to me. Don't even get it. Like, do you? Um, I know what the Catholic Church's concept of it what is. What is it? What is it? Um, that there's a divinity created by God sending his only son to earth to live the life of a man and to endure the... But what's the Holy Spirit, though? Like the Father, the Son, and, and the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is your soul, I guess. And it's not. I mean, no one, it's not. It can't be that. It's like, you know, the Father, the Son. You, and the... When you have the Holy Spirit enter into you, um, I guess that is like you are filled with the buoyancy of faith of a belief in Christ, I think that would be the 
interpretation of it. Were you ever elevated in any moments of attending church or, or doing theology? Did it ever make any sense? Does it, or does it resonate with you now? Does it inform what you do as a performer? I have been filled with the Holy Spirit continuously because I get to make music and that is religion to me. Like music mm-hmm. is like the, it's divine. It's connection with other people. It's communication. Okay, so I like, I also want to hold on to the concept of div- divinity. I I do. Like there has to be a notion of the divine, doesn't there? Like it doesn't no, have to be good. it doesn't have to be. Okay. Um, to survive, I I want to believe in some kind of divinity, whether that is solidarity with my fellow workers or, or whatever. Like I have to believe in something. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Every time I go on stage, I have a little like non-religious prayer that I make and my little prayer works. is always um, so we're all going to die. Yep. But you've made this show or you've written these words and these people are here to see it and it's scary and it's weird and it might go wrong but you need to have commitment to the thing that you've written and you need to also know that you have absolutely no control over it and my big prayer is clarity. Go out there and be clear okay, with your ideas and, and be. There is an elegiac quality to your work. I mean. I do feel a lot of the time that you're mourning or you're preparing for mourning. I mean, particularly in, you know, my favourite work of yours, which is Songs from the Middle is the soundtrack with the Brodsky Quartet. Um, And there is a sense of, well, preparing for mourning in that, right? Like it's like we're all going to die and maybe the world is going to, maybe the human species will, will end. Is that so you're comfortable with that before a performance? Like we're fucked? Well, like I actually take come from the fact that everyone in the audience and me are going to die yeah. someday. So that actually takes the the weight of the anxiety and the importance of this gig off my shoulders a little bit. And I'm mm-hmm. like, we're all going to die. Everyone in this room will be dead. So this is just like a kind of a crazy fantasy that we're going through and I'm going to walk on stage and I've done – hopefully, rehearsals, and I've written words and I know myself enough that when I get nervous, I lose faith in the words that I've written. But my little prayer is commit. So who are you praying to? Um, Something above, like the universe, you know. Human energy or what? The will to power? What, what, are, you, what are you addressing? Not a muse, obviously. Well, I guess it's the I, I guess it's probably the God that I grew up with, but I. But it's the ghost of the Holy Ghost. It's not. No, no, it's like the it's like because you're um, purely atheist now. You're faithless, right? Yeah, but I think there's some sticky stuff still hanging in there. I mean, how can there not be? As a Catholic, and I'm sure this goes for many faiths. You see, especially as a young girl, you know, a young girl. Uh, sort of from a very early age, goaded by very various means into finding men the most attractive thing. You see this young fucking dude with abs on a cross, like this handsome mm. guy, this handsome young guy on a 
nearly naked on a cross. He's ripped as shit, right? Did you see The Passion of the Christ? The Mel Gibson film? Yeah. Yeah. What did you think? Um, Gay porn? I mean, in a a good way, I mean. I think I I kind of enjoyed it like most people did. Mm -hmm. And, you know. I mean, it's hard not to read it as. Mel Gibson is gone crazy, like everything he does. But I mean, and there wasn't anything revelatory. I was like, no. "This is Jesus Christ superstar without the songs Sh- and sure. a lot of blood." But the sexiness of Jesus, I didn't get the sexiness of him. I did because I remember, as you know, sort of like a tween, a prepubescent girl, thinking Jesus is hot, and hot in a way that the boy bands or the you know, the sort of fairly apparently neutered young men that are presented to young women to desire in this presumably asexual way, right? Because you know how that happens to little girls, right? Jesus would have been hot though. I mean, yeah. and There's a lot, no way an uncharismatic ugly dude. than he's depicted, of course. Yeah. But, um, you know, the Passion of the Christ, for me, visually, it's, it's you know, terrible in so many ways and funny also, I mean, Perhaps the information is still available online, but the amount of merchandising associated with um, The Passion of the Christ, I mean, it's like Star Wars level merchandising. You could buy nails to wear or with, with tiny psalms inscribed on them and, and stuff. Like I think- I- one of my secret passions is religious merchandise. I oh, love fuck. religious kitsch. I mean, especially, I mean, and no one does kitsch like the Catholics. Oh. It's right. I, I have tre- Hindu trouble. Hindu Catholics are the best. It's like um, all the. Filipino Catholics. Yeah, they're good. Like, fuck yeah. And from my vantage point, a lot of the Mexican Catholic kitsch is quite lovely and appealing. And, I mean, a lot of people feel that way, but. I mean, my gosh, you know. A friend of mine who knows I love religious kitsch brought me back something from the Vatican, which was one of those hologram things where you look at it at different yeah. angles and yeah. there's two different images. And it was like this really super realistic bloody Jesus on the cross. Hot. And he had, like his eyes closed, the blood running down his face. But if you moved your head, his eyes opened. That was the only difference that's between amazing the two because, frames. I mean, because that's exactly like the naked lady postcard, you know, working class people in in the 1960s, you know, when the magic motion thing was developed, I mean, there would be those naughty postcards that you could send of a woman on South End or Brighton Beach or some equally like actually quite terrible Mm. uh, working man's holiday beach and, you know, you looked at it in one way she had a bikini on and another she had a bikini off. Of course. It was like that but with Jesus in his. Jesus wounds. Looking at you or not looking at you. And I really, I really like it. Actually, it was in our toilet, and this sounds massively disrespectful, but like you know, you, you kind of be going to the bathroom and looking up and down again, different perspective. But I, I don't know. I live with um, the church and Jesus and interpretations of the Bible my entire childhood. And dude, you can't. You know, you can't. I despise the. Catholic Church, like I really do. You're a cultural Catholic. I mean, it's fine, you know. I mean, and because of the ineffable injustice wreaked upon Jewish people in the middle twentieth century, I mean, and anti-Semitism is still alive and well. There were several consequences of that. Europe and America, and to an extent, Australia have never 
come to terms with their anti-Semitism. You can see anti-Semitism coming back. You can see anti-Semitism, you know, reformed for Muslim people. I mean, the same things that we Christians used to say about Jews, we now say about Muslims. But, I mean, the other thing is that anti-Semitism is really coming back. But... uh, Look, man, in New York... Jews are amazing. Like, Jews have got, like, they've got it down. But, I mean, it's really in Western culture, and this is because of so many lives lost and so much Christian guilt and so many people, you know, acknowledging their complicity in these terrible anti-Semitic acts. The booby prize, apart from Israel, is... Jewish people can be culturally Jewish, right? So in Western culture, Jewish people are permitted to be culturally Jewish. How many atheist Jews do you know, people who identify as... Yeah, me too, right? So people, they don't go to the, the high holidays, but if you learn the correct greeting for Pesach or you don't serve Serrano ham when they come around or whatever... They're like, oh, thank you for acknowledging my culture. And it's not anything to do with religion or faith. Part of it, I think, is the very scholastic tradition in Judaism where it's kind of fine, and this is the same in some parts of Christianity and some parts of Islam, where you can talk to your cleric and say, I don't believe, and, and then the cleric will say, well, that's fine, just try to believe. You know how hermeneutics and shit, like there's a long tradition in, 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 in Judaism of like, you know, talking to the rabbi about what God really is and, and stuff. So that's part of it. But, I mean, another part is I think it's, a, it's kind of like Christian guilt. It's like a booby prize. You're allowed to be a cultural Jew. Like you're allowed to be Ashkenazi or Sephardic or whatever and there's a place for you and we're sorry we allowed so many of you to be slaughtered. For so long, and so you can be a cultural Jew, and um, be culturally Jewish and faithless. But it's a little bit harder to be a cultural Catholic. But I know that many of us are. I feel so Catholic in so many ways, and I'm unsurprised to learn that you were raised Catholic. I didn't know, but I'm unsurprised. But to be in Western culture, to be Muslim. You can't be a cultural Muslim. I mean, even though there are many, you know, I mean, you do things to please the family or your friends or you take. There are lots of cultural Muslims. Yeah, I mean, there are, but in Western culture, they're not recognised as such. They're held to be, you know, consonant with the stupidest Western Christian interpretations of the Quran. Like, oh, yeah, you believe in virgins in heaven, a misinterpretation. And so. It's um, I I just you know I I'm interested to think of religion as a cultural identity rather than as a faith because that's how it exists for many of us I think because you know you say that the ghost of God that in which you don't believe is still there and this idea of divinity it informs your performance right you know I was until I was 15 years old I was going to church and I don't. I, I, I despise like the human institutions that come up around religion and then solidify their power and then create 
rules and ethics, and I can't believe how far away the Catholic Church is from the primary teachings of Jesus Christ. If do you, you like do you, do you like the Pontiff now though? I mean, I think no, Francis is a, no Francis is a good guy. Honestly, he might be a good guy, but where did he get the idea for the hat? Where did he get the design for the hat? Where does that come from? I don't know, but I mean, I think that Francis, the the Jesuit, is actually a pretty fucking good pope, dude. You don't? I love the Jesuits. Oh, fucking! I because mean, their entire order is about educating people. That's their mission. Well, and so and I don't particularly agree with why, because they're like you know, there's some kind of reward or some god looking above them telling them that that's what they should do. I believe in humanism. I think that you should look at humans and- I don't understand what humanism is. I believe that it's an enlightenment concept and I believe it is just as religious and- You don't believe that people are deserving of love and education and- No, no, no. I believe that we are, as we are social animals who organise ourselves into societies- that we have an obligation to each other, we're born with that, right? We are, as Aristotle says, by nature social, which is a weird thing to say because, like, we're biologically non-biological. We're biologically destined to be informed by other people and, like, of course, but, I mean, when one says humanism and when, you know, your comrade at university, Tim Minchin, and Tim has long been an advocate for the so-called new atheism movement. And when Tim talks about humanism, what he is talking about is a specific thing, which is Enlightenment era kind of misinterpretation of Darwin. You know, humanism refers to something that is absolutely from a particular tradition. So, I mean, why say you're humanist? I mean, surely we all believe in others. No, I don't think that's a given. I don't think a lot of people believe in others. I think people think that some people are a lot better than others. Most people think that they they believe in a system where some people are more important than others. We're coerced into believing that in our every interaction nearly. You know, I mean, our social being, our survival, the means of our survival and the, and the means of most people's survival in the world now, I mean, almost exclusively is that you have to work to get money to feed yourself and perhaps put a roof over your head. That's how most people in the world exist. And when survival becomes transactional, that creates a particular view. Like this is fundamental to the way I view the world being the way that you attain or are forced to attain your survival, being creates consciousness. The way we survive the way we meet our basic needs, that you and I, everyone just about is forced. We have no other choice but to go to work to transact for our everyday survival, right? You with me? Yeah, I enjoy it myself. Okay, yeah, but you are a fucking unusual guy. Yeah, I've had my ups and downs with it, but, you know, there is a a very strong sense that some people deserve, there's there's a... um, uh, a conservative value that says that some people are more deserving of yeah, means. Fuck, fuck that shit. I mean, even the idea of meritocracy to me is is abhorrent. Like, why should somebody who has more gifts from early childhood or God or nature or whatever you want to call it, right? Like, who knows where your gift for music came from? It just is. It just happens. You just 
are good at that, right? And you were fortunate enough to be noticed and and have the wherewithal to present it to people. And I mean, you have a sense of like great fortune. Like it's like, oh my God, I got so lucky. Like I'm going to America. I'm writing two Broadway shows that open and I know you a little bit and you're not like, you don't take that for granted. That's like enormous amount of luck as far as you're concerned. It's Yeah, it's, it's a combination of luck and hard work and I've, I've certainly had the feeling of what it's like to not have those opportunities. Like me writing musicals and not writing musicals, it doesn't make any difference to the world. Like the world doesn't no, need you're just keeping more yourself musicals. happy and Oh, well, you know, I mean, like yeah. Nothing, mean, nothing means anything unless we invest in it. Like you only have to turn on a sport that you don't give a shit about to see like hundreds of thousands of people who are so invested in the outcome of that sport. I was reminded, I mean, not that I'm a big fan of him in many ways, but Noam Chomsky was listening to a baseball match many years ago mm-hmm. and um, listening to the, the commentary and there was Vox Pops, I think. I I, I, I can't remember the text. Um but um, it's an old thing, and and he was like, he was over, he was overwhelmed by the amount of knowledge that you know Joe Schmo in Chicago had for the sport, the yep. trades in the sport, and he was like, why can't people apply this to understanding the political economy? And sport is an amazing example of where people will really, I mean, the things, even little boys and little girls, I mean, you talk to them and they. They know statistics and and they know how much players are are paid and they know what their strengths and weaknesses are and it's yeah amazing. I mean, people are really knowledgeable about sports. Sport. The antithesis of life. Sport is like life with clear rules and clear outcomes. People win, they lose. It's a lot easier. Like in the arts. There is no fist pumping victory moment. You, mm. you know, like winning an award is not a fist pumping moment because winning an award is kind of arbitrary and and you've won Helpmans and shit, right? Yeah, but yeah, and it's like my attitude is always like anything, anything good that comes your way that allows you. I don't want. I don't need to have gold on the podium, but if I'm on the podium, if I'm bronze, if there's something comes my way that means that the next thing is possible. I'm really happy. Okay, but were you always like that? I mean, were you never in your 20s or your 30s and you were like, woohoo, you know, like you were never invigorated by acknowledgement or well, success? Yeah, I thought that I mean, I, I was would... lost to it, honestly. I was in the time, in the brief time that I was famous and you're too young to remember, but I was for a brief time a girl, right? I was a thing and I was completely seduced by it. Really? Oh, fuck yeah. I was just the worst. I don't like, I mean, on the face of it, I still did good things, but I had this condescending view that because of my success and there was one year that I earned more than my dad and that was a big thing because, you know, back in the 90s. He wouldn't have known that though, right? Oh, I told my parents everything back then. Really? Um, and, And also dad was really good with reading contracts. Dad's a really intelligent person and gave me good advice. This is good advice for you. If you ever have to engage a lawyer, um, whether they're public defender or expensive civil or a fucking like hugely uh, costly barrister, always work out what you want to ask the barrister in advance. And my dad was always great with that stuff. And so I was sending my contracts and 
I mean, back in the 90s, it was like the Australian working class slash middle class aim was earn your age. If you're 25, you earn $25,000, right? And by the time you retired, the aim was to earn $65,000, right? And so I exceeded my dad's wage, so I was paid well and I was even, my name was on the cover of Cosmopolitan magazine and I did a fashion shoot. Like, can you believe it? And Yeah, I can believe it. I mean, but why did I do it? Like, why did I wear Versace? In a you don't know why you did it? I do know why I did it because I had a stylist, um, a makeup artist and a hairdresser making me look beautiful and I have these this document now of myself as a 20-something girl looking amazing. Um, so that's pretty much why I did it. I also did it to show the middle finger to everyone at high school who fucking punched me. Yeah. And I wanted to wear couture, you know, I mean terrible. But I was, I mean, I think you're just a lot saner than me, but I was completely seduced by all of that ridiculous affirmation in that brief period that I enjoyed conspicuous success and I I became very liberal, like all of the justice that I, I was very involved with the Aboriginal reconciliation movement and since that time I've returned to understanding that the, the land rights movement, the treaty movement is what it's all about. Did you see the Kate's show like eat my shit, eat my black shit for reconciliation? Like reconciliation is fucked up. Like reconciliation implies that there is an argument, you know, and there's that can be amended and there's no argument. Um, uh, The British ruling class claimed land and built great wealth on stuff that belonged to other people and we became a major world economy. on the continued um, exploitation of Aboriginal land and, and and Aboriginal people, and Aboriginal people continue to function as another, as um, evidence that we are better, and all all of that shit. So, I mean, so all of the stuff that I did for about ten years it was like reconciliation, talking down to my fellows of the white working class and saying you need to be better, you need to be more tolerant, and I did that, and I feel ashamed um, because that's what most people remember me for, like being a sassy feminist on ABC radio. And, oh, my God, I feel sick when I think about it now. How how did it end? How did you transition from that? I had no choice. I had a stalker who became, I mean, the poor guy, you know, I mean, he'd had a hard life, I since found out, and he had probably had all sorts of trauma as a result, he had the delusion that he and I were married and he stalked me, and I forgive him utterly, but he stalked me for uh, about a year, like physically, and um, I lost my shit because um, there was a guy who believed we were married. My bosses thought that it was fine to admit him into my place of work. They thought it was funny. Um I recently read some of the records and my boss said to me, you should fuck him and that will turn him off, you know. And one day I was working with a guy that I didn't, like, gel with and 
he just says something like really inoffensive and that was it. And I never worked, walked back into the building again. I just had a meltdown. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, have you ever had a stalker? Have you ever had somebody who is like, who believes because they've seen you on television or in a public place um, that they feel some intimacy with you to the extent that it becomes a delusion and they, they think that you and they are connected and they pursue you relentlessly? Uh, I've had some intense delusional people, but um, it hasn't been it, it hasn't been so delusional that when I've I've I've, I've interacted with them, right? So it's been very odd, but it's been okay. So no, it would be the answer yeah. to that. And I mean, you know, it's now I think a common experience for people. I mean, back in my day, like it was an unusual experience because media was top down. It was held by certain people. Shortly after I left that job, the internet exploded and, you know, and then 2008 we have the social media explosion and I know plenty of people who present as something on social media and people who don't know them very well or don't know them at all. It's an abnormal response no matter what. Yeah, but I mean people have shit in their lives, right? And Yeah, that's not your shit. I know it's not my shit, but I mean people can't help it. Mm. And so they troll or they you represent something to them mm. in that moment and it's taken me a long time to understand that that um you know real life stalkers or trolls or whatever you want to call them it is about their shit but it will still be inflicted on you if we're all fucking connected and we're all mm. on fucking media which we are now and many people experience a version of this on social media so that's the, to answer your question that's the reason that i um didn't have that job anymore. And it was, you know, in one sense it was good. I mean, probably brought me to thinking about things more deeply and not being such a shallow person and not being obsessed about me. But, you know, I know I'm banging on about me now. No, it's good. I'm enjoying it. Um, Okay, so what I did, and this was like 99 or so, Mm-hmm. I went on 60 Minutes, I went on Australian Story, I was the front page of the Sydney Telegraph um, and the Sun Herald and any time media called me to talk about my experience, I would, and I had this liberal feminist delusion that other women would identify with me. And or be, and be empowered by it? Yeah, so. but there was no end to my story. I wasn't, I never recovered never earned that kind of money again, never sort of reclaimed my place. And I mean, not that I was ever like the kind of person who should be a popular person. It was completely by accident. But uh, like it just, I don't know why it happened. I walked into the right place at the right time. And so it was like this it girl for like seven or eight years and then earning more than my dad. And um, and then you know, and so, and that would have become the norm. Norm for you, you would have been like, "That's this is how I roll now, right?" Yeah, yeah. And then twenty years later, almost, we have me too, and there's all these women doing exactly what I did, publicly disclosing their their their, their experience of trauma. I have to say, I mean, maybe mine was slightly different because the so-called aggressor in my my case was not the true problem. The true problem was the men that surrounded me at work who thought it was funny. Like didn't, wouldn't, 
no matter how many letters I wrote. Wouldn't support you. Understand how paralysed with fear I was. Yeah. This guy writing me letters, um, I think he sent me, somebody sent me a jar of their piss. I think it was him. And I don't know. I mean, I got a jar of somebody's piss and like die bitch on it or something. And, you know, so it was, I mean, it's not dissimilar to a lot of stuff that a lot of everyday women experience, although usually their stalkers are known to them. Mm. Um, but I deluded myself that this was a real experience and if I spoke about it, other women would be empowered and, you know, like let's just talk about what happens to women and, you know, um, they can be sexualized and, you know, their their abuse experiences are trivialized. I mean, not to say, not for a millisecond, that what happened to me was anything like rape. It wasn't. I mean, I have had, you know, friends, men, women and um, non-binary people who have experienced sexual abuse and it wasn't nearly as bad as that. So I'm not complaining and I recovered and I'm fine and to a degree. But um, so it happens, you know, 20 years later, this thing that I did so long ago and fucking dominated Australian media to the degree. And it's very funny. I've got it on old cassette somewhere. You remember the old radio duo, Martin and Malloy? Yeah. Yeah. And they did actually a skit on Helen Razor, the stalker girl, and it's really funny. Like it's because that's what I became known for, like a victim. And um, and now I see so many younger women and older women too, like saying I was a victim, I was a victim, and then some very popular women talking about victimisation that I can clearly see is the result of their work and not like do you remember the Candace Sutton stuff with Tim Ferguson? Mm. That was complicated. I was like, uh, very complicated. Yeah. Um, but where were where was the boss? Yeah. Where was the union? I think where where was the and boss is the biggest question in this whole thing. It's like where is the person that can allow people to to talk and to actually break down the difference between one person's perception and one person's intention. Yeah, and I mean, you Some know. Some people are just like outright cunts, right? So that's obvious. Yeah, I mean, sure, they are. But, I mean, it's like, so ladies and men and gender non-binary people, we're talking about abuse at work, right? This yeah. is what the whole Me Too conversation is about, but no one is talking about work. We see this great unfolding of beautiful men saying, I would never do this. I support women. Okay, great. That's fine. Thank you for being on my side. But why aren't we punching our way into union representation and actually talking like what other, when somebody is abused at work, what happens and how can we fix this and Women are much more likely to be in um, insecure work than men um, and women are much more likely to be the victims of this sort of abuse or the survivors of this kind of abuse. So why aren't we having that conversation? I don't believe that I can ever, as much as I love to talk and love to produce things that, you know, make people think about things in a different mm. way, perhaps or make them hate me or whatever it does. I don't think I can change people. I think that their their daily experience with others is what changes them. And what will change them is by having a worker organisation that says, no, abuse at work 
is not acceptable. And whether that abuse is gendered or sexualized or over years you have your back hurt as a retail worker or a healthcare worker, it's all abuse and it's all wrong and I will not be exploited because of unequal power relations Mm -hmm. in my workplace. And it's six months, Eddie, since the, as we talk, since the Harvey Weinstein allegations. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, if what he, uh, if what is claimed of him, he did, I mean, obviously he's a pig fucker, like fuck that guy, right? If, so when I say allegations, understand I'm saying it because, you know, blah. Um, But in the six months since then, what have we got? We have got this ridiculous idea that we can fund enough lawyers for all the women and men and other people in the world to contest what, is it civilly or criminally, I'm not sure, Uh, you know, things that have happened to them at work. Where are the uh, attempts at at, at worker organisation to say yeah. no, to say no, we we are the lifeblood of this organisation. Uber is not valued, for example, at seventy billion dollars without the drivers. And I mean, my God, Uber drivers! Imagine the abuse they cop, like mm. especially yeah. the women. And I mean, so many industries. And I mean, I know, and we don't have to talk about it, but I know that in you know your industry, you've seen extraordinary things. Uh, directed to vulnerable people of of any kind. So where six months on is the discussion, like every union in Australia is all like, me too, me too, but why aren't you campaigning for us to have a voice at work? I mean, all you're saying is a hashtag. And, And so from my memory of being in that position and believing very firmly and also hanging on to my celebrity, honestly, because yeah. big media organisations were asking me to talk and so I did and because I was vain and deluded that I was powerful and important or whatever and I thought that if I kept talking that somebody would take notice and give me a gig and I see what has happened is that certain already well-known people are elevated. And But where are the, where are the everyday victims of abuse at work in this, like we have one story in the New York Times with all these stunning photos of women of colour who work in Detroit as auto workers, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And here in Australia, um, the team working on Me Too style allegations say, well, you know, we'll eventually get to other professions. But in the meantime, we believe we are leaders. I mean, Really, you know, I mean, you have a realistic idea as a performer of what you can and cannot do. You hope, you just said to me, musicals, does the world really need another one? Like, Of course not. It's not an essential what, industry. What we do is play, what we do is provide perhaps a little joy to some people, maybe occasionally a coin drops in your head when you hear something that Eddie sings, but... Otherwise, what do we do? Are we leaders? No. When we're not. We're fools. We're jesters. You know, and as for people in media, no one fucking respects my profession anymore and so they shouldn't. It's yep. like in the depression, it's a good time for performers because you don't try to tell us anything. And if you do, we ignore you. Like, but if you try to crack open our brains, 
and allow us to interpret your work. And I think this is one of the reasons that you have, because you don't prescribe to people, you don't moralise, do you? No, I've seen enough um, people that I admire and respect make horrible snakes myself included and life is complicated and messy and but you never do di- and you never do didactic purely political theater i mean you do no i gave up on that because not not so much because of moralizing but be- partly but, but because of the 24 hour news cycle and just being devastated about the short shelf life of my material it was like it takes a long time to write stuff and it sucks when it becomes outdated but also it's your thing um, because you're you, that you don't prescribe and you don't moralise, you engage. And this is one of the reasons I think that there's been a return to the live experience, even here in Australia where everything is shit and people don't want to spend money. I mean, why do people go to see a musical? And what musicals succeed? I mean... Those yeah, I do kind of prescribe a little bit, but like oh, yeah, my, but my you're, attitude has always been like if you're going to tell people the truth, you better be funny. So, you know, taking a framework or an argument that you completely disagree with and just following it to its illogical extreme mm-hmm. in a song for me is a weapon, you know. Yeah, I mean, obviously you do have views and, I mean, this is where we coincide a lot because you have a great impatience with the aspirational middle class, generally white aspiration you are I've, in. I've got songs that I'm ashamed of because I feel like I the, the target wasn't right. Like um, I, I wrote a song about um, uh, Kerri-Anne Kennelly. Yeah. Um, who I never met when I wrote the song that yeah. I've since met. She's quite sweet, right? Well, but, you know, like she um, had um, Spider Everett on her show uh, not Maybe not on her show, but was she, he the guy that said some rapey stuff? He was the one that footballer. There was some quote about like you know when you get invited up to Milo? have a cup of Milo. Yeah, like you know? you know, girls, if you go to a boy's house, I mean, what are you expecting? Like, yeah, to be was, raped. Yeah, basically. that was her advice, and there was a big swing against her, and I totally appreciate that kind of um, leaping to the fe- defense of victims and not you know, blaming victims, but as as a parent, I kind of, I'm not a victim blamer, but I'm also like a common censor as well. So I felt a little bit bad about it because I wrote a song and she was a target. It was called No Means No Except When It Means I Love You, right? It was just a consent song, but she was the focus of it. But I was like, she's not the perpetrator of what's going on No, here. she's just upholding a unpleasant ideology. But it's very easy to attack the people that are like um, not the perpetrators that just have an opinion on it, mm. and that and that is something that I've like been ashamed of when I didn't put it on the CD or the DVD. I cut it out, but I see Which it all the time in? with people where like you know someone writes an article about me too, and then someone piles on and goes, "I don't like the way you're expressing your oh my goodness, disgust I about mean, that." You know, I, like, there's so many occurrences in in the popular culture or on the social media where you know everyone says you have done wrong, you have done wrong. You're not critiquing it right, and right? It, it's like, okay, for a start, this was a tweet or a Facebook post, or it was something from popular media, and. There is a great crisis, um, particularly like 
one thing that the, the liberal left have always taken care to maintain is their interest in the arts, right? Like, I mean, I know a lot of conservative people like the higher arts and shit, but, um, you know, it's always the liberal left that have critiqued arts and you know what I mean, right? Like you don't get a lot of alt-right arts reviewers. I, I have no idea actually about the answer to that. Okay, I, well, I mean, most from my experience, most reviewers of the arts and of culture are um, people who are maybe liberal left-leaning. Yeah, I think and, they're the people that buy the tickets, to be honest. Yeah, and um, because, you know, if you're an alt-right person, you're like, oh, Fancy Pants Broadway, that's not for me. And, um, you, you know, I mean, there is so much blindness to criticism, um, like good arts criticism, which I really believe in. I wish I was a better arts critic so I could defend it with more strength. But um, so a couple of weeks ago there was all these articles about the new Roseanne. Right? Oh, yeah, about the fact that that character is a Trump supporter. I have not seen the show. but Okay, really I'm, I've seen a few episodes for a multi-camera sitcom. It's actually pretty good. And it explains why some people blindly follow Trump and why some might blindly follow Hillary. I wasn't aware, as I think most people aren't, that that Roseanne Barr, the creator of Roseanne, had become a Trump supporter. I, I, I genuinely didn't know. And I think most people don't know, right? Like she was like, she disappeared for a while and she's back with a new show. And so she plays a person who voted for Trump. And then her sister, played by the excellent Laurie Metcalf, yep. is wearing a pussy hat and a nasty woman T-shirt and she has an equally blind faith in Hillary. And it's on network. It has currently broken TV viewing ratings. Um, people are really watching it and it's like I love Lucy style of, you know. Yeah. It's amazing how many people are watching it. And for me having followed the US election and its aftermath very closely and particularly the way that it's um, you know, explained by news media, this is the one time I've seen on mainstream US media people exploring why the ludicrous devotion to one of, or the other when clearly neither of them are good. There's a scene, the first scene, the very first scene in the new Roseanne is um, John Goodman and Roseanne Barr as, as the Connors exchanging their medication and you have the statins and I'll have the antidepressants and, you know, and they're on kind of like half or quarter doses of medication because that's all they can afford because they're a, a Rust Belt family. But why are they medicating? For like um, oh, for, depression or anxiety? Oh, for, or? for depression, for, you know, a range of things. They're sick. They're old. They still have to work. They don't have much money. Their kids don't have much money. And so they're doing a thing that would that I know really happens in, in U.S. so-called flyover states where people, because, you know, 51% of the U.S. population earn less than $30,000 a year. I mean, poverty in the US, you've been there, you, you know, right? And, and people have nothing. And Dude, it's insane. There are 345 million people in yeah. America. And the, and the mass of them are living in what we could call poverty, also without social services and mm -hmm. 
you know, and um, with a, 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 an increased chance of incarceration and, you know, in towns where the only employer is, is Walmart and so you work there for $11 an hour, America's biggest employer. And, you know, and the Connors really evoke this. You terrify me, by the way, because I'm about to move to America. Yeah, um, you know, but that's just mm. the state of things there yeah. um, in this country where there was once a great middle-out growth for mostly white people after Franklin Delano Roosevelt and after the the, the Second World War when America got this. The New Deal. Yeah, it was the New Deal, but it was also America worked out that manufacturing weapons was a great way to maintain their economy. And, you know, for a while there was a lot of people who became what we would call the middle class. Yep. But their income and their and their wealth has been diminishing for the last 40 years. And so, you know, like white people still earn more than people of colour in in the USA, but the amount of stuff that they've lost over that last, you know, few decades of what we call neoliberalism is, you know, market-friendly, fuck the worker, you know, fluid labour, outsource mm-hmm. jobs offshore, et cetera, the, the thing that the white working class man has lost is enormous. You know, I mean, and there's, and the welfare state, like all the remnants of the New Deal are now gone. Honestly, it was Bill Clinton who fucked welfare um, with the Personal Responsibility Act, which his first lady was very um, enthusiastic about. And it was Bill Clinton too that caused the prison population to swell. But then why do African Americans love the Clintons so much? Which African Americans are you talking about? I mean, black people in America, like, ask Black Lives Matter, right? Which is a very influential real life action group. Ask anybody in Black Lives Matter what they think of Hillary Clinton. Okay, so if you're faced with somebody who is preaching tolerance and I'll fuck you, or preaching intolerance and I'll fuck you, who are you going to vote for? The person that's, you know, least- I, I thought that Bill Clinton earned a lot of support from the African-American community when he was in power, but I might have that wrong. You know, uh, 1992 was a very different time. Yeah. And, um, you know, I mean, there is the famous quote from the author Toni Morrison about America's first black president, which she actually meant critically she didn't mean in a complimentary way. Um, and, you know, he was on the Arsenio show, um, one of the very few um, black men who's ever been granted a Tonight Show when he played the saxophone and, uh, you know, there was elements of Kennedy. Was it Arsenio Hall that he played the sax on? Clinton, yeah. Clinton, right. And, you know, he promised a lot. And over time, you know, I mean, but, I mean, they're all the same, right? They've, they've all been the same since FDR. They've just all continued a similar march to redistributing wealth up to the top. And, you know, I mean, they've all got worse. Yeah. I find the whole thing so stupid. I find the whole race thing, I understand the history of it, but I find it so arbitrarily stupid. But, it, I mean, it's a political tool, right? It works. Um, the partition of British India, you know, where basically British people had been working on people with different faiths since the time they invaded that land 
you know, and so you get to partition in 1947 and, you know, the line between um, India and Pakistan was drawn by a guy in a few weeks who'd never been there. And, um, well, on a map. Yeah. Yeah, right. Because, and so the decision to divide up countries by religion and two to three million people died in partition often because, I mean, it was a terrible thing. I mean, often because, you know, people were filled with, loathing if they were Hindu for a Muslim or vice versa and, you know, Sikhs got into shit as well and, you, you know, this whole kind of like hate politics, I hate your culture, you hate my culture, had been invigorated as a political tool. And, you know, I mean, Nazi Germany, I mean, this dog-eared fascism of hating somebody who's different to you that you might have or your family might have lived for generations within peace, all of a sudden, like you are old enough to remember before 9-11 and mm-hmm. you were maybe an adult before then? I was at university in Perth when, because um, of the time difference, we were watching Is Rove it? Live on a black and white TV and then it just snapped to the Twin Towers. Yeah, it was something. And do you remember what happened to Muslim Australians in that time? Like. Before that, it was like, oh, they're Muslim. Don't know what that means, but all right, they're a bit different. And, you know, and and people who were brown or had different conventions might encounter everyday racism. But, I mean, you know, my Muslim friends tell me and they're of various ages that everything changed. And the relentless narrative from Howard here about, you know, very – he was an out-and-out racist, but he was very effectively racist. Fear them, fear them. They are evil. We get the new atheist movement at around the same time with dickheads like Sam Harris saying this religion is essentially corrupt and, and violent and vile. People began to believe it. And so the racism became systematic, you know, and it, it changed like that. It changed in a matter of months. And I'm sure you remember it. Like, yeah. And the media was so relentless that if you saw a lady in a hijab or you saw a brown guy with a big beard, if you were on a train, you were, like, wondering if you were going to get fucking bombed. Yeah. It was bullshit. Yeah. I feel like it happens in a minor way with – and, you know, like, this is not me having thought about this very much, but, like, I've seen a lot of films about the kind of African-American struggle – and slavery and slave owners and these films that are really brutal and it's always painting black Americans as the other and, and like, this, I get that they're supposed to either remind us of history and make us aware of Okay, what a lot here. of the function of a lot of these things is look at how bad things were in the past and how far we've come. I mean, despite the fact that, you know, a lot of black people are basically enslaved. They can't get a job. They've been socially engineered into poverty. Yeah, but I don't like to see people racially vilified because of the way they look. I feel like it it entrenches this sense of them being the other. Do do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, I do. I mean, I despise that sort of – I mean, I see a lot of these things as racist and, I mean, even – something like the Selma film, right? It was like Mm -hmm. you were supposed to be left at the end of Selma and there's a really, really great new documentary that was just, I mean, it looks so promising I haven't seen it, but it was just um, played I think it's South by Southwest about 
Martin Luther King, who actually became quite radical in his later years, anti-war, anti-poverty. They were his two things. And he wanted to find a a way to join whites and blacks in a struggle for equality. And in that time, he became very unacceptable. So if you look at Selma, it's like, and MLK joined, uh, you know, MLK led a march and then everything was okay at the end, you know. And so it's supposed to be to see the suffering, which is actually, I think, pornographic for a lot of people. I mean, I think a lot of people like what we're dark people, right? And we enjoy watching suffering. I know. I think we, we get, I think we're supposed to feel bad about it, but I'm worried that we get conditioned by it to go, this is power and this is powerlessness. I, I really worry about the imagery of that stuff. Well, I, I mean, I do for several reasons too, because I think what it does is it gives us um, license to watch violence and enjoy it and yep. feel victorious. And people love watching, you know, I mean, like, why do you think there's so many pedo stories on the telly? Like, come on, like, why is this such a, an urgent thing? I mean, why do people like watching telemovies and news stories about the most extreme, disgusting pedophilia? I mean, why is this presented so regularly for us? I despise it. I despise shows about serial killers. What's going on in their mind? I'm like, I don't give a fuck what's going on in their mind. Apparently, I don't want to hear anything about these a- people. Apparently this is the only non-true crime podcast left in the world. I mean, people love – I mean, serial, I didn't love it. I mean, because – Someone dies. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but, you know, whatever, a lot of people like it. Yeah. I, I, it's interesting because, like, Australia is so fucking white. Yeah, but Australia is not actually that white. Like, if you go on a train or to the, the supermarket or whatever, I mean, we're not that white. But, I mean, if you work in certain elite professions. Well, music theatre is very white in Australia. Yeah, I mean it's it's ridiculously it's, white. It's 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 weird, right? Hmm. That our employment sectors are so ghettoized. I mean, having said that, you you go to America and in the service industry, right in the hospo, it shocks me when I see, you know, that the the the, the wait staff are all white, and then you know the bus boys are all Hispanic, and people washing the dishes are black, and so you see that kind of. You, uh, you know, racialized labor, but yeah, we don't have um, in representational stuff in culture stuff. We're very white. Yeah, I, I mean, I really enjoy um, working with other cultures. I enjoy that, and I'm very ignorant of what their life is like, and I don't know what the line, what the racial lines are. I've only really like kind of messed up once where I was talking to a guy at a bar. And I asked him if he was Mexican and he got really angry at me and he called me a racist. Right, because he had a had a Spanish accent and he was... Yeah, he was from like uh, Puerto Rico or D- Dominican from my country. He wasn't he was You were Mexican. probably the 20th guy to call him Mexican that day, maybe. You got him I was like, at the wrong hour. What's wrong with being Mexican, man? Like he was just like not everyone who speaks Spanish is... From Mexico, and I was like, okay. But you perhaps understand the man's reaction. I don't like being mistaken for things that I'm not. Mm-hmm. Although I am often mistaken for Jewish, and I love that. Okay, um, 
I've been talking to you for hours and I've mm. kept you up and you have things to do. But to return to an earlier thing about which I think I was blathering, mm. your it's kind of del- it's a d- delightful perversion that you are about to go to America to do these very American things. Yeah. And your oeuvre is very Australian and you have been grappling and succeeding in my view for for some time with describing this weird place mm. and your vantage point and critiquing it for for others um i want to ask you a stupid question and a very naive one i don't know what being australian is i don't think that we have a national identity i think this has psychologically a lot to do with the initial act of racist land theft and and, mm-hmm. and murder that we won't commemorate or talk about the ongoing cultural genocide of the people who were the custodians of this land on which we've, you know, made so much. I mean, I think it's like it's a repression thing. It's just like psychological as much as it is economic. And I'm really quite interested by the way that people call things un-Australian and I mean, you have probably said it as a joke. I've said it as a joke. Oh, that's fucking un-Australian. You know, you're not drinking anymore. It's of course fucking it's un- a joke, yeah. Um, but, I mean, people say it seriously in the present era and gain political traction by saying what's Australian and, and what's not. And so hopefully you were spared all the bullshit postmodernism of the 1990s when you went to university. But there's this one interesting theory about language, I mean, which actually comes from the early 20th century, which is, Language is a case of absence and you only say something because you're saying what it's not. So when you say cat, a cat is only a a way to refer to a cat because it's not a bat. And so language, so the theory is that language is always a case of absence and whenever we try to utter meaning in words, all we're saying is this thing is not this. So there's this theory of language, right? So, you know, a, a cat is a cat because it's not a bat or a car or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And so this is sort of extends into the postmodern era and people kind of like theorise around, um, you know, identity, who we are about, like we only form ourselves because we're not the other. And that, you know, and that this might be, um, you know, the human condition or it might be political or, or, or whatever, whatever. And with the birth of the nation state, you know, and people being sort of forced to have national identities because countries, nation states didn't always exist. I mean, yep. and so most countries define themselves in the terms of what they're not. But I think in Australia it's very extreme and we define ourselves in terms of what we're not constantly and this is audible in the serious use and the widespread use now of the term un-Australian. I mean, people say it seriously. You know this, right? Yeah. Um, and we're un-Australian. Would you, would you agree that we are hopelessly grappling for a sense of national identity because- Of course we are. You have to look at when an American celebrity comes to Australia and some breakfast TV show tries to feed them Vegemite and then get their approval. Like, do you like us? Do you like it? Do you like this? You know? Mm. I was like, what do you think of Australia? Are you having a good time in Australia? And if I was at a party once um, in Sydney where a an Irish backpacker, a female Irish backpacker, somebody asked her 
in a room of Australians, what do you think of Australia? And she was like, uh, I don't really like it. And it was amazing. It was like a bomb went off in the room. Wow. People were like, have you been to like Coffs Harbour? Yes. Have you been to the Northern Territory? Yes. Have you been to Broome? This woman had been to more places than any other person in that room. She had travelled around the whole country yeah. and she didn't like it. And it was so confronting yeah. to Australians. Did she happen to articulate what she didn't like? Um, I can't uh, remember. I can't remember. She just, I don't know. She might have been, she, she might have just been a really miserable person, but there was this intrinsic <laughs> sense that everybody must love Australia. Yeah, like, do you yeah. love us, you know? And... And we can't even articulate what it is that you should love. Yeah. Um, and so, you know. The I other- know what it is you should love. You should love our commitment to being so far away from everything. That somehow that's a virtue, that we're away from everything, we're not a part of the whole world, but we've got something special going on. I mean, they, look, fucking, you know what? The the cruel invasion of this nation aside, I, I do see Australian characteristics that are not entirely unpleasant and, you know, we can see this in history, the Shearer's Strike, Eureka Stockade, our revulsion for talking ourselves up, I really like that. And I, um, I work for a young, talented editor who is from, her parents are from Sri Lanka and at one point she wanted to get the Eureka Stockade tattoo because mm-hmm. this as a young person I mean, she's still quite young, but as a very young person, this represented to her what she actually liked about this nation. And that was, well, at the Eureka Stockade, it was a very multicultural group of people saying, fuck you, bosses. And so, you know, you have met Jermaine Greer, I believe, and she Mm -hmm. is one Australian or ex-Australian public intellectual who says, you know, the Western labour movement kind of really started in Australia and this is where it's died. And so, you know, not to get all Marxy and Labor and there is power in a union about it, but, I mean, to talk about it in a, a more pleasant everyday way, the fuck you attitude, the don't work too hard, don't give the bosses too much, be suspicious. Perhaps it comes from our convict heritage. Um, I, I don't know where it comes from, but I, I like all of those things. And, I mean, me and this um, young editor sort of talked about doing a regular column where we tried to explore that fuck you thing that Australians of many kinds have. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's real, right? And that's one thing that I think is good about being Australian. It's like don't talk yourself up, don't fucking trust power. It's all a bit of a joke. Like all of that's... Okay, right? Yeah. Are you Well you, I'm I'm that's that's who I am. I'm, I know. I'm Australian. I, I love Australia. And I think the things that are great about Australia is that the geographical environment is absolutely stunning. It is endlessly stunning and varied. And the um flora and fauna is breathtaking and amazing. Every day you're seeing plants and animals that have adapted to this country in such unique ways doesn't happen anywhere else. It's such a beautiful place. Uh, but, I mean, the people too, like whether we choose to acknowledge it or not, we have a very porous kind of culture, perhaps because, you know, the original sort of white invaders and, and, and prisoners didn't and still don't have maybe much of a sense of identity, but because we are so porous 
and vulnerable. Like what actually happens for me in everyday life in Australia's second biggest city is we, there in our language, there are Greek words, there are Aboriginal words, and we adopt characteristics of every kind of person that ever comes here and all of us do. And, um, uh, but we don't acknowledge that. We still have this delusion that this was made great by white people. And do you know the old Phillips essay? I'm sure you do, The Cultural Cringe. Of course. It's amazing. And in it he describes a program that was on the ABC. And this program is, you know, you have one great musician from Europe play a piece and then an Australian, uh, this was written in 1950 in Mianjin, which still exists and is now edited by a man I have known as an editor for many years, Jonathan Green. And so one person plays, a European plays a piece and then an Australian plays a piece and generally the, the judge's reaction is that the, you know, it's anonymous, but the judge's reaction is that the European piece is better. But every so often the, um, the, the playing of the, the local Australian is, is good and it wins and, you know, and so it's a moment and many people were listening to this program at the time, you know, so it was a moment of saying, oh, see, we can be as good at the, as the Europeans at, at playing European classical music and this is where the essay starts. And, I mean, it's a very good essay and it's, it's a terrifyingly relevant essay, particularly around uh, cultural goods. And it's like we must compare ourselves to external things. Of course. That's the cringe. And the cringe exists today stronger than ever. And it's always this thing where, like, Australians don't have the confidence, and this is a broad sweeping statement, so this is a generalisation, but Australians don't have the confidence to go, that is good. I think that is good, so that's good. It's almost like has it had the imprimatur of Europe, has it had the imprimatur of the US? Has it come from America? Like a million Americans love this show, so it must be great. You still have to get out of Australia and get the stamp of approval from America for Australians to go, oh, this is good. The weird thing is that when there are films um, and pieces made about life as an Aboriginal Australian, those are very often quite successful in other countries, like, um, say, John Pilger's uh, documentary Utopia very well received in other nations. The guy was torn a new asshole here in Australia. And I remember when I was very young, this band called the Warumpi Band. They're quite good. Yeah, I remember them. You know, and had a song called Jalen Guru, Parker Anu. And the first time it was recorded and shown was on French television. And so, you know, one of the few records we have of this band playing kind of like rock and roll is, is, is from French television. So, but what, before you go, and you must go, because we've been here for three days. But don't you think the best, the most interesting music is Indigenous at the moment? Like um, you, you think of the stuff that um, Trials and Briggs is make, are making, the music they're making is not just great, smart lyrics, but they're working, their sonic sound, their production is getting better at every single album. It's so tight and focused. And then you've got like Baker Boy from from um Arnhem Land, I think, you know, yeah. and he's like, he's like a Yolnu um, Beastie Boys sound and he's mixing English with Yolnu and it's so exciting to hear. Mm. And I feel like white Australian culture is so fucking shallow. For me, culture is like something you do twice in a row. Like, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to go to the pub on 
Boxing Day, and then we go to the pub again the next Boxing Day. We've done it two years in a row now. That's our tradition. We don't have deep traditional roots. And I'm like, why wouldn't we why wouldn't we try to identify with Aboriginal Australia to give ourselves some deeper roots? Do you think that the generosity of Aboriginal people is abundant enough that they would let us enjoy their music, their stories, their culture, and to be able to feel like because we come from this country and we love this country and it's and it's nature and it's isn't that possible or is there too much damage? Aboriginal people overwhelmingly from Uluru, you know, the um, conference there, I mean, what Aboriginal people say that they want and what young Aboriginal writers and older Aboriginal writers overwhelmingly say that they want is treaty. There are more conservative Aboriginal voices such as that of Warren Mundine or Stan Grant who say, all we want is constitutional recognition, but it seems to me, and it's hard to assess, you know, so many people, but it seems to me that the consensus is we want treaty. I mean, it's not like fuck off, get out, but it's like we we want a treaty. Look, finally, give us a treaty, let's talk about this. But, I mean, Turnbull has turned it down and he will keep turning it down and producing when he can compliant Aboriginal people, there's not that many of them, you know. I mean, it's time and the will has changed and I don't go to demos much anymore for various reasons, but I did go to the Invasion Day one this year. I was expecting 500, 1,000 people, 60,000 motherfuckers turned up in Melbourne. Fucking love you guys. Like there were so many people and it was a fun day. I mean, you probably, if you didn't go, you probably heard of some of the media fallout. Of a young lady called Tani Onus Williams who said, and it was very funny at the time I was there, she said, oh, fuck Australia, you know, um, and, you know, burn it down. It was a joke in an otherwise impassioned speech. The great Tony Birch um, spoke after her and delivered, as he always does, something very poetic and um, conciliatory even. Tony is a big advocate for, you know, comradeship. But, of course, you know, it was reported as uh, so much dissonance. Aboriginal people are so full of hate. I mean, I can't speak to it because I'm not Aboriginal, but from my friends and my comrades and looking at, you know, even quite big events, you know, such as what happened at Uluru this year, I mean, what people want is treaty and it's fucking about time. But to finish with you, the what I want is language. I want to learn language from the place where I'm from. I think that's really important, and I want to learn the songs. I want to. You're an artist. That's okay. That's not condescending. It would be condescending of me to say so. Why? Because I have no capacity for language. That doesn't, that doesn't matter. No voice. Really, must let you go. But at what point did you? decide or was the decision made for you to put place names and Australian concepts in your work when so many people don't? Because I feel like the existence of being middle class is so culturally shallow that we have to maybe ironically romanticise the things that we see around us. 
Because I feel like, you know, like good things, bad things, romance, loss, love, death, all those things happen against the backdrop of like appallingly middle-class institutions like Westfield shopping centres and Ten pin bowling alleys and, and multinational fast food yeah. outlets. All those things occur in your songs. I mean, there is a backdrop of a food hall or something. And you know, when I sing like my sister worked at Bunnings, people laugh at that. But it's also like, isn't that isn't that our landscape? Are we supposed to just pretend that we don't live amongst these? realities like food courts in Westfield shopping centres where it's like all the food of the world but we just sit at a weird, get a kebab from Alibaba's kebab place and sit and eat it at a weird little plastic table. Isn't that how we experience the world? Like, But you know, you know as well as I do, people don't like, people of the so-called middle class, they don't like to talk about material reality. They don't, they want to talk about a better world. No plan how to get there, but their better world, their better future. We ignore the conditions in which we live. We ignore our stagnating wages. We still hold on to this delusion that things will only get better, that we have arrived at the end of history and everything will be okay if we just keep doing as we have been doing with maybe one or two tweaks. And this is a Western virus. There are so many people who say, to quote, the very elegant and very deluded former first lady, Michelle Obama, at the 2016 um, Democratic National Conference, America is already great, is what she said. And in that moment, I thought, you have lost the election. I think Trump's going to win. Because when she said so publicly, America is already great and, like, the real-life material experience of so many Americans is not that it's great, that it's been getting worse or that it's terrifying and that there's no future for their kids. And she said America is already great. And, I mean, I know people in my life, oh, Australia is pretty great, isn't it? No, I earn dollar for dollar less money than I did 10 years ago and, um, you know, it's harder to get a bulk billed doctor and, I mean, so many things are more difficult. There are, there's less money, there's, there's fewer social services. I mean, everyone's experiencing this. Australia has the biggest private household debt ratio to GDP of any other OECD nation. We have a terrible, like mortgage stress is a huge problem. Yeah. A high rental cost is a huge problem. The average, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, the the um, median Australian wage income is $662 a week. That's what is typical for people to live on. You know that's not enough. Yeah, that's not good. And so- you talk about place names, shops, franchises, food halls, these places where we live our lives, but that's not how we want to describe ourselves. We want to believe in a future utopia. We want to believe in progress, that everything's been getting better and better. And, you know, dude, it's not. So I think this is part of... I think that everyone wants an identity. Like, white Australia wants an identity and... Howard provided that identity with the idea of glamorising um, the Gallipoli campaign, which is just a fucking disaster. But I remember being a little girl and and we did, you know, we, we repeated the oath on Anzac Day and 
most of us kids were crying about the loss and the regret. And then what happened? Anzac Day became a fucking party. What the fuck is that? I know exactly what that is. It's about pluckiness in the face of adversity and it gives Australians an identity when we really are struggling to find one. But I really think that we need to look to Indigenous Australia to find an identity. I don't know whether they will let us in to their party, but I think... Of course. I mean, of course. You know, I mean, it's like... I mean, I understand. Like- Same-sex marriage laws passed in Parliament and everybody sang um, the fucking Seekers song, We Are One, badly. You know, like, I am, you are, we're all Australian. It was, it was terrible. I'm like, is that the song? Is that the song? Is there not something, is, is there not a way for us to connect deeply with Indigenous culture to to not just think about the whiteness that we have but about this country that we've been a part of. And I think that Australians connect very strongly with the land and with the environment and they want to be a part of something. And I think that we could change that. You can't we- not have a sense, you can't not live here and not have a sense of country. If if you're listening elsewhere, I mean, our sky is so big. It's bigger than the sky in Texas and our country is so arid and, you know, we cluster into these little bits of arable land. It's you can't, even if you're not very outdoorsy, um, you can't not have a sense of, of being here. Uh, it's it's country that threatens to kill you. <laughs> you can't ignore it, right? Of course. And I sing the anthem at my kids' assembly and I used to Do just you? go totally quiet on the second verse because they insist on doing the second verse. With that nobody knows. Yeah, well, you know, like. For those who've come across the seas with boundless planes to share. And I always found it kind of like humiliating. And then I just went through this thing. I was like, no, I'm going to sing that really loud. And I've found my way through it. I used to be like, this is a lie. And now I'm like, no, this is actually like important because it's a value that they haven't taken away. Okay. Next time I want you to sing the Internationale at your kids' assembly. Actually, I have a proposition for you, Eddie Perfect. Uh, I don't think anyone in English um, has updated the lyrics of the International since Billy Bragg. It's up to you. What are you talking about? the International? Oh, fucking God. It's the Communist International Anthem. There's a Communist International Anthem? Yeah, it's the theme tune for this podcast. Is it? Yeah, you, I'm fucking, I'm, I'm giving you capital and... I'm, 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 and then I'm sharing it with I'm going to call you out online. I'm giving you capital, sharing the capital. I don't want to work, but you want to work. And then and we'll split no, the no. capital and you'll buy a house and then I will sleep on your couch. Um, goodbye, <laughs> comrade. <laughs>